Welcome back to Factor Fantasy with Chase and Josh. We are here. We are at the end of the contents of the novel Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Today we will be tackling chapter 34 through the epilogue. So after today you will hear no new information regarding the Harry Potter series in its totality. So it's going to be uh, uh, an emotional uh, resolution here. We're going to, we've been at this since October 25th. So it's been a long time coming, but we're finally here at the end. Uh, we're going to see what happens, who makes it, who doesn't, and really how it all plays out. So before we go ahead and jump into the contents of the novel, just giving you guys another quick update on the visuals here. Everything you see is the same as you saw last week. I've still got my Harry Potter unofficial book of spells. Uh, you'll see here the uh, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows novel. I got Harry himself as a Funko Pop. And then on the other side, we've got the uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which that's a good segue into letting you guys know we will be finishing up uh, next week with uh, Part 10, which will be the differences between chapters 25 through the epilogue in the novel through the film uh, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 2. So that will be finishing up everything with Harry Potter next week. And then, of course, we have our different, uh, I'm sorry, the rankings episode following that. So we're coming into the end here uh, today, like I said. We're going to finish up the book. It's going to be great. Uh, before we get started, I'll let Chase take it over and, and say his piece, and then we'll get rolling into it. Yeah, man. Uh, I'll just say, after all this time, here we are. I think that word says it enough. Uh, says it for itself. So, uh, in the word always, you know, always for you guys. You're the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. Uh, that Hogwarts train, the rails are broken now. <laughs> so there's no more breaks. We've been at the top of the mountain now, and now we're just flying off the train tracks on our way down. So uh, let's close it out with style today. In the words of Kingsley Shacklebolt, <laughs> got style. <laughs> you can't <laughs> deny we got style, man. So I'm going to let you go ahead and take over from here, and let's get started with Chapter 34, The Forest again. Absolutely. Before I do that, though, you know, guys, I always like to do a quick recap of where we left off because last week was our huge climatic episode where we got to really see a lot of great stuff, right? You know, we got back into the room requirement. We got to see some characters we haven't seen in a while. We got to see Seamus. We got to see Neville. We got to see, you know, the Gryffindor, Ravenclaws, and Hufflepuffs stand up for Harry, right? Uh, we had the little quick duel between the Hogwarts teachers and Snape. Snape had to flee the castle. Then we had the really big moments in the Battle of Hogwarts where, you know, we had Harry, Ron, and Hermione in the Room of Requirement searching for the diadem where Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle kind of tried to foil their plans. And that whole thing happened where Crabbe ended up setting off that fiend fire and ended up killing himself. Uh, actually helped destroy the Horcrux, though. And then from there, we uh, unfortunately had the really sad incident where the Hogwarts wall blew apart and we found a fan favorite, uh, Fred, dead on the floor. And then we got into... The Shrieking Shack, where Voldemort and Snape were having a bit of a conversation. Voldemort thought the only way that he could master the Elder Wand was to kill uh, Snape as a previous owner. We're going to see how that plays out today. But in any event, Voldemort did go ahead and strike the killing blow to Snape, made his snake go over that force field, suck over Snape's head. Nagini bit him a couple times and he was bleeding out. Harry runs over there, he gets that uh, silvery substance from Snape's like tears and they uh, grab the contents of the uh, of his memories and put it into the pensive and we get to see 
you know, as Chase said, after all this time, where Snape's loyalties truly lie, and they lied with uh, Harry's mom, Lily, and Dumbledore. So that kind of really closed us out until the point where we find that Harry, the big reveal that we find in that last chapter that we went over last week, is that Harry has been led like a pig for slaughter up until this point. He's the unintentional eighth horcrux. He needs to walk into death willingly, and we're going to see what ends up happening today. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get our malice in the chalice here, and I'll take us from chapter 34, and we're going to get this thing rolling, baby. Cheers, brother. Off to the pit of misery with you. You know, I'll be there next week. <laughs> That's for oh, sure. With those, with those differences, yeah, I think we'll both be there next week, man. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll, I'll meet it, you brother. in the pit of misery. I'll, I'll save a seat for you. But This anyways. one will keep me happy, though. This one, I'll be in a, the best mood ever. Next week, I'm going to have a little have to have a little pick-me-up. <laughs> next yeah, <week>. right? <laughs> I'll let you Absolutely. take it away, brother. Without further ado, we're going to give you... Part 9, where we're going to be tackling chapter 34 through the epilogue. We're going to start here at the forest again. Finally, the truth. Lying with his face pressed into the dusty carpet of the office where he had once thought he was learning the secrets of victory, Harry understood at last that he was not supposed to survive. His job was to walk calmly into death's welcoming arms. Along the way, he was to dispose of Voldemort's remaining links to life, so that when he at last flung himself across Voldemort's path, he did not raise a wand to defend himself, and the end would be clean, and the job that ought to have been done in Godric's Hollow would be finished. Neither would live, neither could survive. He felt his heart pounding fiercely in his chest. How strange, in his dread of death, it pumped all the harder, valiantly keeping him alive. But it would have to stop, and soon. Its beats were numbered. How many would there be for? How many would there be time for? As he rose and walked through the castle for the last time, out into the grounds and into the forest. Terror washed over him as he lay on the floor, with that funeral drum pounding inside of him. Would it hurt to die? All those times he had thought that it was about to happen and escaped, he had never really thought about the thing itself. His will to live had always been so much stronger than his fear of death. Yet it did not occur to him now to try to escape to outrun Voldemort. It was over. He knew it, and all that was left was the thing itself. Dying. If he could only have died on that summer's night when he had left number four Privet Drive for the last time, when the noble Phoenix Feather wanted saved him, if he could only have died like Hedwig so quickly he would not have known it had happened, or if he could have launched himself in front of a wand to save someone he loved. He envied even his parents' death now, this cold-blooded walk to his own destruction would require a different kind of bravery. He felt his fingers trembling slightly and made an effort to control them. Although no one could see him, the portraits on the wall were all empty. Slowly, very slowly, he sat up, and as he did, he felt even more alive and more aware of his own living body than ever before. Why had he never appreciated what a miracle he was? brain and nerve and bounding heart it would all be gone or at least he would be gone from it his breath came slow and deep and his mouth and throat were completely dry but so were his eyes Dumbledore's betrayal was almost nothing of course there had been a bigger plan Harry had simply been too foolish to see it he realized that now he had never questioned his own assumption that Dumbledore wanted him alive 
Now he saw that his lifespan had always been determined by how long it took to eliminate all the Horcruxes. Dumbledore had passed the job of destroying them to him, and obediently he had continued to chip away at the bonds tying not only Voldemort, but himself to life. How neat. How elegant. Not to waste any more lives, but to give the dangerous task to the boy who had already been marked for slaughter, and whose death would not be a calamity, but another blow against Voldemort. And Dumbledore had known that Harry would not duck out, that he would keep going to the end, even though it was his end, because he had taken trouble to get to know him, hadn't he? Dumbledore knew, as Voldemort knew, that Harry would not let anyone else die for him now that he had discovered it was in his power to stop it. The images of Fred, Lupin, and Tonks lying dead in the Great Hall forced their way back into his mind's eye, and for a moment he could hardly breathe. Death was impatient. But Dumbledore had overestimated him. He had failed. The snake survived. One Horcrux remained to bind Voldemort to the earth, even after Harry had been killed. True, that would mean an easier job for somebody. He wondered who would do it. Ron and Hermione would know what needed to be done, of course. That would have been why Dumbledore wanted him to confide in two others, so that if he fulfilled his true destiny a little early, they could carry on. Like rain on a cold window, these thoughts pattered against the hard surface of the incontrovertible truth, which was that he must die. I must die. It must end. Ron and Hermione seemed a long way away in a far-off country. He felt as though they had been parted from them a long time ago. There would be no goodbyes and no explanations. He was determined of that. This was a journey they could not take together, and the attempts they would make to stop him would waste valuable time. He looked down at the battered gold watch he had received on his 17th birthday. Nearly half of the hour allotted by Voldemort for his surrender had elapsed. He stood up. His heart was leaping against his ribs like a frantic bird. Perhaps it knew it had little time left. Perhaps it was determined to fulfill a lifetime's beats before the end. He did not look back as he closed the office door. The castle was empty. He felt ghostly striding through it alone, as if he had already died. The portrait people were still missing from their frames. The whole place was eerily still, as if all its remaining lifeblood were concentrated in the great hall where the dead and the mourners were crammed. Harry pulled the invisibility cloak over himself and descended through the floors, at last walking down the marble staircase into the entrance hall. Perhaps some tiny part of him hoped to be sensed, to be seen, to be stopped. But the cloak was, as ever, impenetrable. Perfect. And he reached the front doors easily. Then Neville nearly walked into him. He was one half of a pair that was carrying a body from the grounds. Harry glanced down and felt another dull blow to his stomach. Colin Creevy, though underage, must have sneaked back just as Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle had done. He was tiny in death. You know what? I can manage him alone, Neville, said Oliver Wood as he heaved Colin over his shoulder in a fireman's lift and carried him into the Great Hall. Neville leaned against the doorframe for a moment and wiped his forehead with the back of his hand. He looked like an old man. Then he set off down the steps again into the darkness to recover more bodies. Harry took one glance back at the entrance of the Great Hall. People were moving around, trying to comfort each other, drinking, kneeling beside the dead. But he could not see any of the people he loved. No hint of Hermione, Ron, Ginny, or any of the other Weasleys. No Luna. He felt he would have given all the time remaining to him just for one last look at them. But then, would he ever have the strength to stop looking? It was better like this. 
He moved down the steps and out into the darkness. It was nearly four in the morning, and the deathly stillness of the grounds felt as though they were holding their breath, waiting to see whether he could do what he must. Harry moved towards Neville, who was bending over another body. Neville. Blimey, Harry! You nearly gave me heart failure! Harry had pulled off the cloak. The idea had come to him out of nowhere, born out of a desire to make absolutely sure. Where are you going alone? Neville asked suspiciously. It's all part of the plan, said Harry. There's something I've got to do. Listen, Neville. Harry, Neville said, looking suddenly scared. Harry, you're not thinking of handing yourself over. No, Harry lied easily. Of course not. This is something else. But I might be out of sight for a while. You know Voldemort's snake, Neville? He's got a huge snake. Calls it Nagini. I've heard. Yeah, what about it? It's got to be killed. Ron and Hermione know that, but just in case they... The awfulness of that possibility smothered him for a moment. Made it impossible to keep talking, but he pulled himself together again. This was crucial. He must be like Dumbledore. Keep a cool head. Make sure there were backups. Others to carry on. Dumbledore had died knowing that three people still knew about the Horcruxes. Now Neville would take Harry's place. There would still be three in the secret. Just in case they're busy and you get the chance, kill the snake? Kill the snake, Harry repeated. All right, Harry. You're okay, are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Neville. But Neville seized his wrist as Harry made to move on. We're all going to keep fighting, Harry. You know that. Yeah, I... The suffocating feeling extinguished the end of his sentence. He could not go on. Neville did not seem to find it strange. He patted Harry on the shoulder, released him, and walked away to look for more bodies. Harry swung the cloak back over himself and walked on. Someone else was moving not far away, stooping over another prone figure on the ground. He was feet away from her when he realized it was Ginny. He stopped in his tracks. She was crouching over a girl who was whispering for her mother. It's all right, Ginny was saying. It's okay. We're going to get you inside. But I want to go home, whispered the girl. I don't want to fight anymore. I know, said Ginny, and her voice broke. It's going to be all right. Ripples of cold undulated over Harry's skin. He wanted to shout out to the night. He wanted Ginny to know that he was there. He wanted her to know where he was going. He wanted to be stopped, to be dragged back, to be sent home. But he was home. Hogwarts was the first and best home he had known. He and Voldemort and Snape, the abandoned boys, had all found home here. Ginny was kneeling beside the injured girl now, holding her hand. With a huge effort, Harry forced himself on. He thought he saw Ginny look around as he passed and wondered whether she had sent somebody walking nearby. But he did not speak, and he did not look back. Hagrid's hut loomed out of the darkness. There were no lights, no sound of fangs scrabbling at the door, his bark booming in welcome. All those visits to Hagrid, and the gleam of the copper kettle on the fire, and rock cakes, and giant grubs, and his great bearded face, and Ron vomiting slugs, and Hermione helping him save Norbert. He moved on, and now he reached the edge of the forest, and he stopped. A swarm of Dementors were gliding amongst the trees. He could feel their chill, and he was not sure he would be able to pass safely through it. He had no strength left for a Patronus. He could no longer control his own trembling. It was not, after all, so easy to die. Every second he breathed, the smell of the grass, the cool air on his face was so precious. To think that people had years and years, time to waste, so much time it dragged, and he was clinging to each second. At the same time, he thought that he would not be able to go on, and knew that he must. The long game was ended. The snitch had been caught. It was time to leave the air.
the snitch. His nerveless fingers fumbled for a moment with the pouch at his neck and he pulled it out. I opened at the clothes. Breathing fast and hard, he stared down at it. Now that he wanted time to move as slowly as possible, it seemed to have sped up. An understanding was coming so fast, it seemed to have bypassed thought. This was the close. This was the moment. He pressed the golden metal to his lips and whispered, I am about to die. The metal shell broke open. He lowered his shaking hand, raised Draco's wand beneath the cloak and murmured, Lumos. The black stone with its jagged crack running down the center sat in the two halves of the snitch, the resurrection stone had cracked down the vertical line representing the elder wand. The triangle and circle representing the cloak and the stone were still discernible. And again, Harry understood without having to think. It did not matter about bringing them back, for he was about to join them. He was not really fetching them. They were fetching him. He closed his eyes and turned the stone over in his hand three times. He knew it had happened because he heard slight movements around him that suggested frail bodies shifting their footing on the earthy, twig-strewn ground that marked the outer edge of the forest. He opened his eyes and looked around. They were neither ghost nor truly flesh. He could see that. They resembled most closely the riddle that had escaped from the diary so long ago, and he had been memory made, so made nearly solid. Less substantial than living bodies, but much more than ghosts. They moved towards him, and on each face was the same loving smile. James was the, exactly the same height as Harry. He was wearing the clothes in which he had died, and his hair was untidy and ruffled, and his glasses were a little lopsided, like Mr. Weasley's. Sirius was tall and handsome, and younger by far than Harry had ever seen him in life. He loped with an easy grace, his hands in his pockets, and a grin on his face, too. Lupin was younger as well and much less shabby, and his hair was thicker and darker. He looked happy to be back in this familiar place, scene of so many adolescent wanderings. Lily's smile was widest of all. She pushed her long hair back as she drew close to him, and her green eyes, so like his, searched his face hungrily, as though she would never be able to look at him enough. You've been so brave. He could not speak. His eyes feasted on her, and he thought he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. You are nearly there, said James, very close. We are so proud of you. Does it hurt? The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Not at all, said Sirius, quicker and easier than falling asleep. And he will want it to be quick. He wants it over, said Lupin. I didn't want you to die. Harry said. These words came without his volition. Any of you. I'm sorry. He addressed Lupin more than any of them, beseeching him. Right after you'd had your son, Remus, I'm sorry. I am sorry too, said Lupin. Sorry that I will never know him. But he will know why I died, and I hope he will understand. I was trying to make a world in which he could live a happier life. A chilly breeze that seemed to emanate from the heart of the forest lifted the hair at Harry's brow. He knew that they would not tell him to go, that it would have to be his decision. You'll stay with me? Until the very end, said James. They won't be able to see you? asked Harry. We are a part of you, said Sirius, invisible to anyone else. Harry looked at his mother. Stay close to me, he said quietly. And he set off. The Dementor's chill did not overcome him. He passed through it 
with his companions, and they acted like Patronuses to him, and together they marched to the old trees that grew closely together, their branches tangled, their roots gnarled, and twisted underfoot. Harry clutched the cloak tightly around him in the darkness, traveling deeper and deeper into the forest with no idea exactly where Voldemort was, but sure that he would find him. Beside him, making scarcely a sound, walked James, Sirius, Lupin, and Lily, and their presence was his courage, and the reason he was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. His body and mind felt oddly disconnected now, his limbs working without conscious instruction, as if he were passenger, not driver, in the body he was about to leave. The dead who walked beside him through the forest were much more real to him now than the living back at the castle. Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and all the others were the ones that felt like ghosts as he stumbled and slipped toward the end of his life, toward Voldemort. A thud and a whisper. Some other living creature had stirred close by. Harry stopped under the cloak, peering around, listening, and his mother and father, Lupin and Sirius, stopped too. Someone there, came a rough whisper at close at hand. He's got an invisibility cloak. Could it be? Two figures emerged from behind a nearby tree. Their wands flared and Harry saw Yaxley and Dolohov peering into the darkness directly at the place Harry, his mother, and father, and Sirius, and Lupin stood. Apparently, they could not see anything. Definitely heard something, said Yaxley. Animal, do you reckon? That head case Haggard kept a whole bunch of stuff in here, said Dolohov, glancing over his shoulder. Yaxley looked down at his watch. Time's nearly up. Potter's had his hour. He's not coming. And he was sure he'd come. Oh, he won't be happy. Better go back, said Yaxley. Find out what the plan is now. He and Dolohov turned and walked deeper into the forest, and Harry followed them, knowing that they would lead him exactly where he wanted to go. He glanced sideways, and his mother smiled at him, and his father nodded encouragement. They had traveled on mere minutes when Harry saw light ahead, and Yaxley and Dolohov stepped out into a clearing that Harry knew had been the place where the monstrous Aragog had once lived. The remnants of his vast web were still there, but the swarm of descendants he had spawned had been driven out by the Death Eaters to fight for their cause. A fire burned in the middle of the clearing, and its flickering light fell over a crowd of completely silent, watchful Death Eaters. Some of them were still masked and hooded. Others showed their faces. Two giants sat on the outskirts of the group, casting massive shadows over the scene, their faces cruel, rough-hewn like rock. Harry saw Fenrir skulking, chewing on his long nails. The great blonde Raoul was dabbing at his bleeding lip. He saw Lucius Malfoy, who looked defeated and terrified, and Narcissa, whose eyes were sunken and full of apprehension. Every eye was fixed upon Voldemort, who stood with his head bowed, his white hands folded over the elder wand in front of him. He might have been praying, or else counting silently in his mind, and Harry, standing still on the edge of the scene, thought absurdly of a child counting in a game of hide-and-seek. Behind his head, still swirling and coiling, was the great snake Nagini who floated in her glittering, charmed cage like a monstrous halo. When Dolohov and Yaxley rejoined the circle, Voldemort looked up. No sign of him, my lord, said Dolohov. Voldemort's expression did not change. The red eyes seemed to burn in the firelight. Slowly, he drew the Elder Wand between his long fingers. My lord, Bellatrix had spoken. She sat closest to Voldemort, disheveled, her face a little bloody, but otherwise unharmed. Voldemort raised his hand to silence her, and she did not speak another word, but eyed him with worshipful fascination. I thought he would come, said Voldemort in his high, clear voice, 
his eyes on the leaping flames. I expected him to come. Nobody spoke. They seemed as scared as Harry, whose heart was now nearly throwing itself against his ribs as though determined to escape the body he was about to cast aside. His hands were sweating as he pulled off the invisibility cloak and stuffed it beneath his robes with his wand. He did not want to be tempted to fight. I was, it seems, mistaken, said Voldemort. You weren't. Harry said it as loudly as he could, with all the force he could muster. He did not want to sound afraid. The resurrection stone slipped from between his numb fingers, and out of the corner of his eyes he saw his parents, Sirius and Lupin, vanish as he stepped forward into the firelight. At that moment, he felt that nobody mattered but Voldemort. It was just the two of them. The illusion was gone as soon as it had come. The giants roared as the Death Eaters rose together, and there were many cries, gasps, even laughter. Voldemort had frozen where he stood, but his red eyes had found Harry, and he stared as Harry moved toward him with nothing but the fire between them. Then a voice yelled, Harry, no! He turned. Hagrid was bound and trussed, tied to a tree nearby. His massive body shook the branches overhead as he struggled, desperate. No! No, Harry, what are you? Quiet, shouted Raoul, and with a flick of his wand, Hagrid was silenced. Bellatrix, who had leapt to her feet, was looking eagerly from Voldemort to Harry, her breast heaving. The only things that moved were the flames and the snake coiling and uncoiling and the glittering cage behind Voldemort's head. And Harry could feel his wand against his chest, but he made no attempt to draw it. He knew that the snake was too well protected, knew that if he managed to point the wand at Nagini, fifty curses would hit him first. And still, Voldemort and Harry looked at each other. And now Voldemort tilted his head a little to the side, considering the boy standing before him, and his singularly mirthless smile curled the lipless mouth. Harry Potter, he said very softly. His voice might have been part of the spitting fire. The boy who lived. None of the Death Eaters moved. They were waiting. Everything was waiting. Hagrid was struggling, and Bellatrix was panting, and Harry thought inexplicably of Ginny and her blazing look and the feel of her lips on his. Voldemort had raised his wand. His head was still tilted to one side, like a curious child, wondering what would happen if he proceeded. Harry looked back into the red eyes and wanted it to happen now, quickly, while he could still stand before he lost control, before he betrayed fear. Harry saw the mouth move, and a flash of green light, and everything was gone. And that is chapter 34. And I will say, you know, just because this chapter itself, I only have five quick takeaways, I'm just going, yeah. ahead, going to go ahead and rip out my takeaways real quick and turn it over to cool. you. Uh, for me. For sure. So my first takeaway in this chapter was obviously Harry comes to the realization that he must let Voldemort kill him without defending himself. And number two, Harry realizes Dumbledore's betrayal, but more so marvels at the genius of Dumbledore's plan. I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, here's this kid who this whole time thought this this father figure, Dumbledore was in terms of, like, yeah, it's somewhat of a father figure to Harry, right? Thought he was trying to keep Harry alive. And then when he finally figured out the plan, like, he's like, wow, he had me fooled. But man, that's one hell of a plan. Like, so I thought that was pretty <laughs> yeah. interesting. Like, you know, he would really marvel at the genius of it. Uh, next takeaway I had, we, we lost another familiar face, uh, Colin Creevy. Colin Creevy is no longer yeah. with us. Uh, 
Harry tells Neville to kill the snake. A little bit of a foreshadow, not giving anything away. Uh, Harry finally understands the riddle on the snitch, and it opens up as he speaks to his dead loved ones before going to meet his own death. That was a big takeaway. And then the last one I have is he walks to Voldemort's camp defenseless, and Voldemort hits him with a killing curse. And we're about to go into chapter 35. But before we do, I'll let you go ahead and speak on your takeaways that you had from chapter 34. Yeah, man. No, this uh, chapter is very straightforward. Like, it's probably one of the most impactful chapters just because uh, it's kind of like, you know, even back in Goblet of Fire, like when they were all sitting in the tent waiting to go to the first task, waiting for it to start. And this is, I mean, of course, we, you know, we had the big climax last week, but this is a pretty big climax in its own because it's all just sitting there waiting like it's one of those where almost like 30 minutes feels like an hour because you're just sitting there waiting for it to happen as he's walking along uh two other takeaways i had you pretty much hit all in mind was just one the fact that you know he's been so close to ron and hermione this whole time and it felt like they were so far away at this moment like they couldn't almost even relate to what he was about to go through and uh, imagine just what's going through Harry's head, just like how you said, piggybacking off of what you said with Dumbledore being like a father figure for him. It's almost kind of a full circle moment where Aberforth was saying, you know, uh, about the truth and lies of Albus Dumbledore, like he was, he could fool anybody. So you almost wonder in Harry's head, like, wow, was he just having me fooled this entire time? Was he that good to play his little chess game that's going on? So all this is probably going on in Harry's head. And then, of course, you know, kind of a full circle moment there, going back to almost like that Goblet of Fire moment or even back to Sorcerer's Stone, like seeing his parents in the mirror. But now you actually get to see Sirius again, your boy. And uh, Lupin, you know, it hasn't been very long, (laughs) but it's... uh, you know, just kind of nicer there, and I thought it was really cool how they acted like Patronuses and kept all the Dementors at bay, away from everything. Um, and then, of course, they follow Yaxley and, and Dolohob, and that's that big moment there. So, yeah, it's just a really powerful chapter. I still remember reading this as a kid, like even getting to the chapter before reading that as a kid, and it was kind of predictable for a minute, before I got to that chapter where I was like, oh shit, no, that is not what's about to happen. And then I read the chapter before this and I was like, they're really doing this. Like, he has to die. It's almost like uh, in the comics of Spider-Man where they actually threw Gwen Stacy off the roof and Mary Jane was out of the picture already. Like, but And you kept wondering here in this chapter, I remember when this came out, Everyone was like, before they got to the next set here that we're about to tackle, next chapter, like, is this really the way it ends? Because think of this way, too. It's kind of like being so close in a football game. Right now, it's neck and neck, right? Even to the point of, say, the other squad has got, you know, it's 21-14. And you're now just about to tie the score with what you're about to do. That's something to let sink in because Harry's having to have so much trust here in Neville, Hermione, Ron. That's why I went up to Neville before because think of it this way. As long as that snake's still alive, 
nothing has been won yet. This is not over by all means. Uh, so that's just a big takeaway. It's funny that you I say had. that too. <laughs> yeah, like just to piggyback off what you're saying there, in terms of it, it's like you're you're going you're you're about to tie a game. It's twenty one fourteen the other team, but you're at the five yard line about to go in, and your mm-hmm. starting quarterback goes out with an injury because that's basically what it is. Exactly. Like Harry's the starting quarterback, and he went to it meant to go meet his death. So I was like, damn, you got to make a yeah. comeback without the main character. Like that's that's kind of crazy. But I did want to throw this malice in the chalice card. Go I haven't thrown one of these in a very, it, very long time. It's been a minute. <laughs> the reason why I'm bringing this up, yeah, right. The reason why I'm bringing this up here is simply because I want to talk about where I was and what was going through my mind when I first read that chapter. Mm-hmm. I remember exactly where I was. I was upstairs in my little room in Cortland, New York. I was obviously this was 2007, so I was still mm-hmm. in high school. I was up there, I was laying in my bed, and I was reading it. I couldn't even go farther than, after I read this chapter, I didn't read right to the next one. I had to stop, take a break. I had, like, tears in my eyes because of how, you guys saw how emotionally stirring the words were in that, really detailing what it feels like to go meet your death face-to-face. Like, man, like, I just got goosebumps right now just talking about it. So what I had to do, I, I, like, had, like, tears in my eyes, but, like, I ran downstairs, and I had, like, uh, outside of our little house, there was this punching bag that one of those big ones where you fill up with water at the bottom of the base so that way it didn't fall over. So I had the little yeah. ball at the top. It was funny. It was like a little pink ball at the top, and it was filled like well, you could either fill it with water or sand. And I just started going to town on the on the um, on the punching bag just because like I, did, I had this pent up energy of just wow, I can't believe I just read all this Harry Potter series and like with two chapters ago, our main character's dead. Like he got hit by that killing curse at the end. And I, like I said, I closed that book immediately, and I, I didn't even go ahead and read it right on from that. I took like an hour break because I couldn't emotionally get myself to just go through that part. I, I was fixated on, oh my goodness, what the fuck just happened? So yeah. that was where I was and what was I was going through when I read this chapter, specifically 34, back in 2007. Do you remember where you were and what was going through your mind when, uh, when you read it? Oh, every single minute. Ironically, too, I worked at the theater, I told you, in high school. <laughs> and I had gotten hired there in 2006. So I've been there right at a year when this book came out. And everyone forgets, this book was huge when it came out. Like, this was the end of the arc. Like, this was the end of the franchise for J.K. Rowling. There were midnight premiere parties. I remember this was back when all those people were getting Death Eater tattoos that now they're stuck with, which I don't know why you would get a Death Eater tattoo. I mean... I guess I can't say anything. I'd probably get a Daenerys tattoo if I could. <laughs> so, but my point is, like, it was just massive. Like, people forget the hype around this. Even the films, like, people would camp out for these things, like Star Wars. I still remember them walking outside the door the day before, and they had their little, like, campers in the back of their trucks waiting to see this movie, uh, which, you know, the books are just that much more. So it just puts even more emphasis on it. But, where I was, I still remember, I actually, so I read a lot of this book at the pool in high school, because when it came out, it was in the summertime, and then, uh, to your point, uh, just how impactful these moments were, I think the back half of the book was when I always, same thing, um, I would either be downstairs, we had like a, a chair in our living room, like in front of the TV, but I would cut off the TV and there, you know, I could block out the blinds and just kind of go in that quiet place or same thing. I'd be right up in my room. And I still remember reading this. And, uh, the moment I was reading this and, you know, I, the same thing, just like you, Jay Nelly, like it's one of those things like these books, 
I would get through them as quick as I could because I would have to shut off all social media. <laughs> like, you pretty much had to shut off all social media while people wouldn't stop running their mouths. Like, I still remember Half Blood Prince when it came out. Someone hung a banner <laughs> over the highway that revealed what happened to Albus. <laughs> so, um, like, you pretty much had to shut yourself away. But the anxiety I was feeling just reading this, and I'm not a type that gets anxious. Like, as you know me... I'm like probably one of the most calm people in the world. And as I was reading it, it felt almost like almost like if it's your last game on a football field, which that might not say much to a lot of people, but if you've ever said played sports, like that moment where you take off your cleats for the last time and you realize it's over, but you didn't win the state championship. Like say you know, your goal all that time was to win that big trophy or, you know, just, you know, embrace every single moment of when you're there. And not only did it have the moment of, wow, like this is about to be over because, of course, I haven't gotten to even the next chapter yet. It was the fact of, wow, did we do all this for nothing and Harry's gone, and it's going to be left up to the others to win this thing. And that's what was so shocking to me, which we find out what happens. But it also showed to me, it kind of was, it showed J.K. Rowling wasn't afraid to hold anything back by doing this, is what I would say. There's so many authors that are afraid to put their main character on the line. They might go as close to, you know, the best friend dies. But Harry's been the one. Like, we followed his journey into the end. Uh, my malice in the chalice here. Malice in the chalice! <laughs> Fuck yeah! We got some time. And uh, I just want to read this one little dedication from J.K. Rowling that's actually in the front part of the book. And it says, and just to show how impactful this is, says, the dedication of this book is split seven ways. To Neil, to Jessica, to David, to Kinsey, to Dee, to Annie, and to you, if you have stuck with Harry until the very end. And the point being is I still remember reading that front part before I opened the book. And this chapter here, and when I was done reading it, I was like, wow, is this what she meant by the end? And it was so unsettling to me. I was the same way. I, I don't think I actually even picked up the book for until the next day. Like, I think I finished it the next morning because I still remember where I was then. Uh, it was before breakfast. Actually, I, I my grandmother's house is where I actually finished it. Ironically, I remember two main parts of where I was when I either of reading the Harry Potter franchise and that was finishing the book and I read when I read Sirius's death ironically even though I'm not that attached to him uh, those points were shaking and I was sitting in my grandmother's chair <laughs> in her living room and I'll never forget that time so uh, that was my malice in the chalice too we just kind of rebounded off each other oh the pun and the irony there uh, but it, it just goes to show guys to our audience as you know if you followed us this whole time 
because uh, it's taking you back to relive those moments, which is really what it's about. And hopefully it's brought some memories to you guys, too, of when you all first started this series. Uh, now it's been, you know, it's been almost 20 years. Think about it. When this, uh, our next, in two weeks from now, it will be the 20-year anniversary of Harry Potter on the week of July 31st. That's pretty pretty phenomenal. I looked it up too, and the film was July 17th it came out. So that was about a, a week ago now. Uh, so just wild, man. Any other thoughts you had on that, brother? None at all, man. Let's go ahead and continue on to Chapter 37. I got to throw my mouse and the chalice out to the Shadow Realm there. And uh, yeah, let's, let's get into it and... You'll have to have you take us through King's Cross. Let's do it, brother. And don't worry, I already put the killing curse on mine. <laughs> so it's already up front. Uh, so King's Cross, let's go ahead and dive in here. So this is chapter uh, 35, page 705. He lay face down listening to the silence. He was perfectly alone. Nobody was watching. Nobody else was there. He was not perfectly sure that he was there himself. A long time later, and maybe no time at all, it came to him that he must exist. It must be more than disembodied thought because he was lying, defi- definitely lying, on some s- surface. Therefore, he had a sense of touch and the thing against which he lay existed too, almost as soon as he had reached this conclusion. Harry became conscious that he was naked. Convinced as he was of his total solitude, this did not concern him, but it did intrigue him slightly. He wondered whether as he could feel he would be able to see. In opening them, he discovered that he had eyes. He lay in a bright mist, though it was not like mist he had ever experienced before. His surroundings were not hidden by cloudy vapor. Rather, the cloudy vapor had not yet formed into surroundings. The floor on which he lay seemed to be white, neither warm nor cold, but simply there a flat blank something on which to be. He sat up, his body appeared unscathed, He touched his face. He was not wearing glasses anymore. Then a noise reached him, though the uninformed nothingness that surrounded him, the small of soft thumpings of something that flapped, flailed, and struggled. It was a pitiful noise, yet also slightly indecent. He had an uncomfortable feeling that he was eavesdropping on something curative, shameful. For the first time, he wished he was clothed. Barely had the wish formed in his head, then robes appeared a short distance away. He took them and pulled them on. They were soft, clean, and warm. It was extraordinary how they appeared, just like that the moment he had wanted them. He stood up, looking around. Was he in some great room of requirement? The longer he looked, the more there was to see. A great domed glass roof glittered high above him in sunlight. Perhaps it was a palace. All was hushed and still except for these odd thumpings and whispering noises coming from somewhere close by in the mist. Harry turned slowly on the spot, and his surroundings seemed to invent themselves before his eyes. A wide open space, bright and clean, a hall larger by far than the Great Hall. With that clear domed glass ceiling, it was quite empty. He was the only person there, except for... He recoiled. He had spotted the thing that was making noises. It had the form of a small naked child, curled on the ground. Its skin raw and rough, flayed-looking, and it lay shuddering under a seat where it had been left unwanted stuffed out of sight struggling for breath he was afraid of it small and fragile and wounded though it was he did not want to approach it nevertheless he drew slowly nearer ready to jump back at any moment soon he stood near enough to touch it yet 
He could not bring himself to do it. He felt like a coward. He ought to comfort it, but it repulsed him. You cannot help. He spun around. Albus Dumbledore was walking toward him, sprightly and upright, wearing sweeping robes of midnight blue. Harry. He spread his arms wide. His hands were both whole and white and undamaged. You wonderful boy. You brave, brave man. Let us walk. Stunned, Harry followed as Dumbledore strode away from where the flayed child lay whimpering, leading up him, leading him to two seats that Harry had not previously noticed. Set some distance away under the high, sparkling ceiling, Dumbledore sat down in one of them, and Harry fell into the other, staring at the old headmaster's face. Dumbledore, long silver-haired and beard, piercingly blue eyes behind half-moon spectacles, the crooked nose, everything was as he had remembered it, and yet. "'But you're dead,' said Harry. "'Oh, yes,' said Dumbledore matter-of-factly. "'Then I'm dead, too?' "'Ah,' said Dumbledore, smiling still more broadly. "'That is the question, isn't it? "'On the whole, dear boy, I think not.' They looked at each other, the old man still be still beaming. "'Not?' repeated Harry. "'Not,' said Dumbledore. But Harry raised his hand instinctively toward the lightning scar. It did not seem to be there.' But I should have died. I, I didn't defend myself. I meant to let them, let him kill me. And that, said Dumbledore, will, I think, have made all the difference. Happiness seemed to radiate from Dumbledore like light, like fire. Harry had never the, seen the man so utterly, so palpably content. Explain, said Harry. But you already know, said Dumbledore. He twiddled his thumbs together. I let him kill me said Harry, didn't I? You did, said Dumbledore, nodding. Go on. So the part of his soul that was in me, Dumbledore nodded still more enthusiastically, urging Harry onward, a broad smile of encouragement on his face. Has it gone? Oh, yes, said Dumbledore. Yes, he destroyed it. Your soul is whole and completely your own, Harry. But then, Harry glanced over his shoulder to where the small maimed creature trembled, under his under the chair what is that professor something that is beyond either of our help said dumbledore but if voldemort used the killing curse harry started again and nobody died for me this time how would i be alive i think you know said dumbledore think back remember what he did in his ignorance in his greed and his cruelty harry thought he let the gaze drift over his surroundings if it was indeed a place, a palace in which they sat, it was an odd one, with chairs set in rows and bits of railing here and there, and still, he and Dumbledore and the stunted creature under the chair were the only beings there. Then the answer rose to his lips easily without effort. He took my blood, said Harry. Precisely, said Dumbledore. He took your blood and rebuilt his living body with it. Your blood is in his veins, Harry. Lily's protection inside both of you. He tethered you to life while he lives. I live while he lives. But I thought... I thought it was the other way around. I thought we both had to die. Or is it the same thing? He was distracted by the whimpering and thumping of the agonized creature behind him, behind them, and glanced back at it yet again. Are you sure we can't do anything? There is no help possible. Then explain more, said Harry, and Dumbledore smiled. You were the seventh Horcrux, Harry. 
the horcrux he never meant to make. He had rendered his soul so unstable that it broke apart when he committed those acts of unspeakable evil. The murder of your parents, the attempted killing of a child. But what escaped from the room was even less than he knew. He left more than his body behind. He left part of himself latched to you, the would-be victim who had survived. And his knowledge remained woefully incomplete, Harry. That which Voldemort did, does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend, of house elves and childish tales of love, loyalty, and innocence. Voldemort knows and understands nothing. Nothing. That they all have power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth he has never grasped. He took your blood believing it would strengthen him. He took into his body a tiny part of enchantment your mother laid upon you when she died for you. His body keeps her sacrifice alive, and while the enchantment survives, so do you and so does Voldemort's one last hope for himself. Dumbledore smiled at Harry, and Harry stared at him. And you knew this? You knew this all along? I guess. But... My guesses have usually been good, said Dumbledore happily, and they sat in a silence for what seemed like a long time, while the creature behind them continued to whimper and tremble. There's more, said Harry. There's more to it. Why did my wand break the wand he borrowed? And to that, I cannot be sure. Have a guess then, said Harry, and Dumbledore laughed. <laughs> What you must understand, Harry, is that you and Lord Voldemort have journeyed together into realms of magic hit hetero, unknown and untested, but here is what I think happened. It is unprecedented, and no wand maker could, I think, ever have predicted it or explained it to Voldemort. Without meaning to, as you know, Lord Voldemort doubled the bond between you when he returned to a human form. A part of his soul was still attached to yours and thinking is to strengthen himself, he took a part of your mother's sacrifice into himself. If he could only have understood the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not perhaps have dared to touch your blood. But then, if he had been able to understand, he could not be Lord Voldemort, and might never have murdered at all. Having ensured this twofold connection, having wrapped your destinies together more securely than ever two wizards were joined in history, Voldemort proceeded to attack you with a wand that shared a core with yours. And know something very strange happened, as we know. The cores reacted in a way that Lord Voldemort, who never knew that your wand was a twin of his, had ever expected. He was more afraid than you were that night, Harry. You had accepted, even embraced, the possibility of death, something Lord Voldemort had never been able to do. Your courage won your wand, overpowered his. And in doing so, something happened between those wands, something that echoed the relationship between their masters. I believe that your wand imbibed some of the power and qualities of Voldemort's wand that night, which is to say that it contained a little of Voldemort himself, so your wand recognized him when he pursued you, recognized a man who is both kin and mortal enemy, and it regurgitated some of his own magic against him. Magic much more powerful than anything Lucius's wand had ever performed. Your wand now contained the power of your enormous courage and of Voldemort's own deadly skill. What chance did that poor stick of Lucius's Malfoy's stand? 
But if my wand was so powerful, how come Hermione was able to break it? asked Harry. My dear boy, its remarkable effects were directed only at Voldemort, who had tampered so ill-advisedly with the deepest laws of magic. Only toward him was that wand abnormally powerful. Otherwise, it was a wand like any other, though a good one, I am sure, Dumbledore finished Kenley. Harry sat in, in thought for a long time, or perhaps seconds. It was very hard to be sure of things like time here. He killed me with your wand. He failed to kill you with my wand, Dumbledore corrected Harry. I think we can agree that you are not dead. Though, of course, he added, as if fearing he had been discourteous, I do not minimize your sufferings, which I am sure were severe. I feel great at the moment, though, said Harry, looking down at his clean, unblemished hands. Where are we exactly? Well, I was going to ask you that, said Dumbledore, looking around. Where would you say that we are? Until Dumbledore had asked, Harry had not known. Now, however, he found that he had an answer ready to give. It looks, he said slowly, like King's Cross Station, except a lot cleaner and empty. There are no trains as far as I can see. King's Cross Station, Dumbledore was chuckling immoderately. Good gracious, really. Well, where do you think we are? Asked Harry a little defensively. My dear boy, I have no idea. This is, as they say, your party. Harry had no idea what this meant. Dumbledore was being infuriating. He glared at him, then remembered a much more pressing question than that of their current location. Deathly Hallows, he said, and he was glad to see that words wiped the smile from Dumbledore's face. Ah, uh, yes, he said. He even looked a little worried. Well, for the first time since Harry had met Dumbledore, he looked less than an old man, much less. He looked fleetingly like a small boy caught in wrongdoing. Can you forgive me? He said. Can you forgive me for not trusting you? For not telling you, Harry? I only feared that you would fail as I had failed. I only dreaded that you would make my mistakes. I crave your pardon, Harry. I have known for some time now that you are a better man. What are you talking about? asked Harry, startled by Dumbledore's tone, by the sudden tears in his eyes. The hallows, the hallows, murmured Dumbledore. A desperate man's dream, but they are real. They're real. Real and dangerous, and a lure for fools, said Dumbledore. And I was such a fool, but you know, don't you? I have no secrets from you anymore, you know. What do I know? Dumbledore turned the whole body to face Harry, and tears still sparkled in the brilliantly blue eyes. Master of death, Harry. Master of death. Was I better ultimately than Voldemort? Of course you were, said Harry. Of course. How can you ask that? You never killed if you could avoid it. True, true, said Dumbledore, and he was like a child seeking reassurance. Yet I too sought a way to conquer death, Harry. Not the way he did, said Harry, after all his anger at Dumbledore had odd, how odd it was to stir beneath the high vaulted ceiling and defend Dumbledore from himself. Hallows, not Horcruxes. Hallows, murmured Dumbledore. Not Horcruxes precisely. There was a pause. The creature behind them whimpered, but Harry no longer looked around. Grindelwald was looking for them too, he asked. Dumbledore closed his eyes for a moment and nodded. It was a thing above all that drew us together, he said quietly. Two clever, arrogant boys with a shared obsession. 
He wanted to come to Godric's Hollow, as I'm sure you have guessed, because of the grave Ignatus Peverell. He wanted to explore the place the third brother had died. So it's true? asked Harry. All of it? The Peverell brothers? Were the three brothers of the tale? said Dumbledore, nodding. Oh, yes, I think so. Whether they met death on a lonely road, I think it's more likely that the Peverell brothers were simply gifted, dangerous wizards who succeeded in creating those powerful objects. The story of them being death's own hallows seems to me the sort of legend that might have sprung up around the creations. The cloak, as you know, traveled down through the ages, father to son, mother to daughter, right down to Ignatius, his last living descendant who was born, as Ignatius was in the village of Godric's Hollow. Dumbledore smiled at Harry. Me? You, you have guessed, I know. Why the cloak was in my possession on the night your parents died, James had showed it to me just a few days previously. It explained much of his undetected wrongdoing at school. I could hardly believe what I was seeing. I asked to borrow it, to examine it. I had long since given up my dream of uniting the hollows. But I cannot resist. I cannot help taking a closer look. It was a cloak that likes of which I had never seen, immensely old, perfect in every respect, and then your father died, and I had two hallows at last, all to myself. His tone was unbearably bitter. The cloak wouldn't have helped them survive, though, Harry said quickly. Voldemort knew where my mum and dad were. The cloak couldn't have made them curse-proof. True, sighed Dumbledore. True. Harry waited, but Dumbledore did not speak, so he prompted him. So had you given up looking for hollows when you saw the cloak? Oh, yes, said Dumbledore faintly. It seemed that he forced himself to meet Harry's eyes. You know what happened, you know. You cannot despise me more than I despise myself. But I don't despise you. Then you should, said Dumbledore. He drew a deep breath. You know the secret of my sister's ill health what those muggles did, what she became. You know how my poor father sought revenge and paid the price died in Azkaban. You know how my mother gave up her own life to care for Ariana. I resented it, Harry. Dumbledore stated it badly, coldly. He was looking now over the top of Harry's head into the distance. I was gifted. I was brilliant. I wanted to escape. I wanted to shine. I wanted glory. Do not misunderstand me, he said, and pain crossed the face so that look ancient again. I love them. I love my parents. I love my brother, my sister, but I was selfish, Harry. More selfish than you who are a remarkably selfless person could possibly imagine. So that when my mother died and I was left responsibly, responsibility of a damaged sister and a wayward brother, I returned to my village in anger and bitterness, trapped and wasted, I thought. And then, of course, he came. Dumbledore looked directly into Harry's eyes again. Grindelwald? You cannot imagine how the ideas caught me. Harry inflamed me. Muggles forced into subservice. We wizards triumphant. Grindelwald and I, the glorious young leaders of the revolution. Oh, I had a few scruples. I assuaged my conscience with empty words. It would all be for the greater good, and any harm done would be repaid a hundredfold in benefits for wizards... Did I know in my heart of hearts what Gellert Grindelwald was? I think I did, but I closed my eyes. If the plans we're making came to fruitation, all my dreams would come true. 
and at the heart of our schemes, the Deathly Hallows. How they fascinated him. How they fascinated both of us. The unbeatable wand, the weapon that would lead us to power. The resurrection stone, to him though, I pretended not to know it. It meant an army of inferior. To me, I confess it. It meant the return of my parents and lifting up all responsibility from my shoulders. And the cloak. Somehow we never discussed the cloak much, Harry. Both of us could conceal ourselves well enough without the cloak, the true magic of which, of course, is that it can be used to protect the shield others as well as its owner. I thought that if we ever found it, that might be useful in hiding Ariana. But our interest in the cloak was mainly that it completed the trio, for the legend said that the man who united all three objects would be truly a master of death, which we took to mean invincible. Invincible masters of death, Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Two months of insanity or cruel dreams and neglect of the only two members of the family left to me. And yet, you know what happened? Reality returned in the form of the rough, unlettered, an infinitely more admirable brother. I did not want to hear the truths he shouted at me. I did not want to hear that I could not be set forth to seek hallows with a fragile and unstable sister in now. The argument became a fight. Grindelwald lost control. That which I had always sensed in him, though I pretended not to, now sprang into terrible being, and Ariana, after all my mother's care and caution, lay dead upon the floor. Dumbledore gave a little grasp and began to cry in earnest. Harry reached out and was glad to find that he could touch him. He gripped his arm tightly and Dumbledore gradually regained control. Well, Grindelwald fled as anyone but I could have predicted. He vanished with his plans for seizing power and his schemes for muggle torture and his dreams of deathly hallows, dreams in which I encouraged him and helped him. He ran while I left to bury my sister and learned to live with my guilt and my terrible grief, the price of my shame. Years passed. There are rumors about him. They said he had procured a wand of immense power. I, meanwhile, was offered the post of Minister of Magic, not once, but several times. Naturally, I refused. I had learned that I was not to be trusted with power. But you'd have been better, much better, than Fudge or Scrimmagor, burst out Harry. Would I? asked Dumbledore heavily. I am not sure. I had proven as a very young man that power was my weakness and my temptation. It is a curious thing, Harry. But perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. I was safer at Hogwarts, I think. I was a good teacher. You were the best. You are very kind, Harry. But while I abused myself with the training of young wizards, Grindelwald was raising an army. They say he feared me, and perhaps he did, but less, I think, than I feared him. Oh, not death, said Dumbledore, in answer to Harry's questioning look. Now, what he can do to me magically, I knew that we were even evenly matched, perhaps that I was a shade more skillful. It was the truth I feared, you see. I never knew which of us in that last horrific fight had actually cast the curse that killed my sister. You call me cowardly, you would be right. Harry, I dreaded beyond all things the knowledge that it had been. I would about brought her death. I who brought about her death, not merely through my arrogance and stupidity, but that I actually struck the blow that snuffed out her life. 
I think he knew it. I think he knew what frightened me. I delayed meeting him until finally it would have been too shameful to resist any longer. People were dying. He seemed unstoppable. And I had to do what I could do. Well, you know what happened next. I won the duel. I won the wand. Another silence. Harry did not ask whether Dumbledore had ever found out who struck Ariana dead. He did not want to know, and even less did he want Dumbledore to have to tell him. At last, he knew what Dumbledore would have seen when he was looked in the mirror of a rise. And why Dumbledore had been so understanding of fascination, it had exercised over Harry, so mirror of air set and why Dumbledore had been so understanding of the fascination it had exercised over Harry. They sat in silence for a long time, and the whimperings of the creature behind them barely disturbed Harry anymore. At last, he said, Grindelwald tried to stop Voldemort going after the wand. He lied, you know, pretending he had never had it. Dumbledore nodded, looking down at his lap, tears still glittering on the crooked nose. They say he showed remorse in later years, alone in his cell at Nurmengard. I hope that is true. I would like to think he did feel the horror and shame of what he had done. Perhaps that lie to Voldemort was his attempt to make amends, to prevent Voldemort from taking the hollow. Or maybe from breaking into your tomb, said, suggested Harry. And Dumbledore dabbed his eyes. After another short pause, Harry said, You tried to use the resurrection stone. Dumbledore nodded. When I discovered it... After all those years, buried in the abandoned home of the gods, the hallow I had craved most of all, through in my youth, I had wanted it for very different reasons. I lost my head, Harry. I quite forgot that it was now a horcrux, that the ring was sure to carry a curse. I picked it up, I put it on, and for a second I imagined that I was about to see Ariana, my mother and my father, and to tell them how very, very sorry I was. I was such a fool, Harry. After all those years, I had learned nothing. I was unworthy to unite the Deathly Hollows. I had proved it time and time again, and here was final proof. Why, said Harry, it was natural. You wanted to see them again. What's wrong with that? Maybe a man in a million could unite the Hollows, Harry. I was fit only to possess the meanest of them, the least extraordinary. I was fit to own the Elder Wand, and not to boast it, and not to kill with it. I was permitted to tame and use it, because I took it, not for again, but to save others from it. But the cloak I took out of vain curiosity so it could never have worked for me as it worked for you, its true owner. The stone I would have used in an attempt to drag back those who are at peace rather than to enable my self-sacrifice as you did. You are the worthy possessor of the hollows. Dumbledore panted. Dumbledore patted Harry's head and Harry looked up at the old man and smiled. He could not help himself. How could he remember... How could he remain angry in Dumbledore now? Why did you have to make it so difficult? Dumbledore's smile was tremulous. I'm afraid I counted on Miss Granger to slow you up, Harry. I was afraid that your hot head might dominate your good heart. I was scared that, if presented outright with the facts about those tempting objects, you might seize the hallows as I did. At the wrong time, for the wrong reasons, if you laid hands on them, I wanted you to possess them safely. You are a true master of death because the true master does not seek to run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understand that there are far, far worse things in the living world than dying. And Voldemort never knew about Hallows. I don't think so because he did not recognize the resurrection stone. He turned into a horcrux. 
but even if he had known about them, Harry, I doubt that he would have been interested at any except the first. He would not think that he needed the cloak, and as for the stone, whom would he have wanted to bring back from the dead, he fears the dead he did not love. But you expected him to go after the wand? I have been sure that he would try ever since your wand beat Voldemort's in the graveyard of Little Hangleton. At first he was afraid that you had conquered him by superior skill. Once he had kidnapped Ollivander, however, he discovered the existence of the twin cores. He thought that explained everything. Yet the borrowed wand did no better against yours, said Voldemort. So Voldemort, instead of asking himself what quality it was in you that had made your wand so strong, what gift you possessed that he did not, naturally set out to find the older, find the one wand they said would be another. Any other. For him, the Elder Wand had become an obsession to rival his obsession with you. He believes the Elder Wand removes his last weakness and makes him truly invincible. Poor Severus. If you planned your death with Snape, you meant him to end up with the Elder Wand, didn't you? I admit that was my intention, said Dumbledore, but it did not work as well. Did not work as I intended, did it? No, said Harry. That bit didn't work out. The creature behind them jerked and moaned and Harry and Dumbledore sat without talking for the longest time yet. The realization of what happened next settled gradually over Harry in long minutes like soft-falling snow. I've got to go back, haven't I? That is up to you. I've got a choice. Oh, yes. Dumbledore smiled at him. We're in King's Cross, you say. I think that if you decided not to go back, you would be able to, let's say, board a train? And where would it take me? On, said Dumbledore simply. Silence again. Voldemort's got the Elder Wand. True, Voldemort has the Elder Wand. But you want me to go back? I think, said Dumbledore, that if you choose to return, there is a chance that he may be finished for good. I cannot promise it. But I know this, Harry, that you have less to fear from returning here than he does. Harry glanced again at the raw-looking thing that trembled and choked in the shadow beneath the distant chair. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love, by returning you may ensure the fewer souls are maimed. Fewer families are torn apart. If that seems to you a worthy goal, then we say goodbye for the present. Harry nodded and sighed. Leaving this place would not be nearly as hard as walking into the forest had been, but it was warm and light and peaceful here, and he knew that he was heading back to pain and the fear of more loss. He stood up and Dumbledore did the same, and they looked for a long moment into each other's faces. Tell me one thing, said Harry. Is this real? Or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him, and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? You want to go ahead and uh, get those takeaways? Because there was a, a lot in that chapter there. For sure. Yeah, I've got 12 main ones that I've put together. Uh, number one, it seems that Harry was in some sort of purgatory, right? Kind of in between the living and the dead world. Uh, mm -hmm. Dumbledore tells Harry that, in fact, he's not dead because he specifically went into death willingly without a fight. That was what made all the difference. Uh, we do finally get that full circle from Goblet of Fire when Dumbledore had triumph in his eyes when Harry had told him that Voldemort used his blood to return to body 
tethering Harry's life to Voldemort's because since Harry's blood runs in Voldemort's veins, Lily's protection is inside both of them now, meaning her Voldemort could not kill Harry personally, which is exactly what Voldemort mm-hmm. wants to do, is kill Harry personally. So that was a great full circle moment. That, uh, that, that was one of the bigger ones that I found in the series. Now, next one I have is Dumbledore gives his thoughts on why he thinks Harry's wand acted of its own accord and destroyed Lucius's wand. So what this does for me, and the reason I bring this up is that I think one of the bigger questions is, does this whole thing happen, this whole this like conversation between Dumbledore and Harry actually happen? Or did Harry just kind of like dream it up? But like, there's things that Harry wouldn't know just out of his own head. So that's why, to me, it gives evidence that this thing really did happen with Dumbledore. That he did have a conversation with someone that wasn't just himself inside his own head. So going from there, uh, Harry sees the place as a cleaner and empty King's Cross station. Which is cool because that's kind of like a foreshadow of what kind of was said at the end of the chapter where Dumbledore tells him, Oh, you see this as King's Cross. I think that if you didn't choose to go back, you could board a train and go on, right? So I thought that was pretty interesting. Dumbledore was ashamed of his pursuit of the Hallows. Uh, Dumbledore gives Harry the full truth about everything. What happened to his family, planned for the New World Order, why he declined the position of Minister of Magic, why he delayed fighting Grindelwald so long. All these things, again, are more points of evidence on why I do believe this conversation between Dumbledore and Harry did actually occur. Uh, From there... We learn how Dumbledore was cursed by the ring. He tried to use the Resurrection Stone, and that's how he got cursed by the ring. Uh, Dumbledore tells Harry that Harry himself is the worthy possessor of the Hallows. So that's pretty cool. Kind of a full circle master of death thing, because even though he let Voldemort kill him, he's not actually dead. So uh, Dumbledore doesn't think Voldemort knew about the Hallows, and even if he did, he would only be interested in the wand anyways, which really kind of goes to show what, what Voldemort has been doing the whole time anyways, like in what... I would say Ollivander when they were talking to him back at Shell Cottage, like Ollivander said, didn't know about the, the Hallows, only worried about the strength of the Wands is what Voldemort was really worried about in terms of overpowering Harry. And Ollivander said, I think by possessing this big Elder Wand, he thinks not only to have superior over you, but makes him truly invincible. So just a thing I wanted to detail there. Uh, Dumbledore meant for Snape to end up with the Elder Wand, but that part of his pen didn't work out. And we're going to learn why in the next chapter here, exactly why there was the flaw in the plan which is the name of the chapter that I'm about to take, the flaw in the plan that Dumbledore had for Snape to end up with the Elder Wand. We're going to see uh, who is actually the master of the Elder Wand, and I don't want to take any uh, credit for what we're about to read yet, but uh, the last takeaway I have, and I'll turn it over to Chase for his takeaways, is Harry has a choice between returning to the living or moving on in death, and he chooses to go back. Those are the takeaways I have for the chapter. What do you have? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much nailed them. I was, uh, one extra takeaway I had was we do see why Dumbledore never decided to become head minister of magic. Uh, because we always kind of wondered that, you know, uh, all the way going back from Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix, where, you know, Fudge was head minister and he was always threatened by Dumbledore. Um, that's kind of a full circle moment there. And now you realize it's really because his past there. Um, of pursuing the hollows with Grindelwald, he almost like sort of feared himself in a way, ironically, like the only one he ever feared. Um, so it, it's just kind of a full circle moment there. But no, I think you hit everything on the head. I'll let you take it away for uh, this is, I mean, last week I say is really the climax, but this is where it's all 
it's all this is really the peak moment right here like this is the final the final ride man i'll let you take it away chapter 35 uh, chapter 36 because you know i'm going back in time so <laughs> chapter uh 36 the flaw in the plan i'll let you take that away yeah what i would say like last week was the climax this week is the resolution that's what i how i put it to myself so i'll go ahead and yeah and start right here on chapter 36 the flaw in the plan so this is going to be the last chapter of what is happening in this timeline and then obviously there's the epilogue after that so this chapter right here really ends the contents of the series per se like obviously the epilogue kind of tells us what happens later on in life but you know it's in terms of where we start at in sorcerer's stone to finally getting the end of this this ride this is the final chapter you know of course like i said there's a six page epilogue but really guys this is the one don't miss this you know if you got to use the bathroom use it quickly don't don't put put us on pause because you don't want to miss anything with this one right here so uh chapter 36 the flaw in the plan he was lying face down on the ground again the smell of the forest filled his nostrils he could feel the cold hard ground beneath his cheek and the hinge of his glasses which had been knocked sideways by the fall cutting into his temple every inch of him ached and the place where the killing curse had hit him felt like the bruise of an ironclad punch he did not stir, but remained exactly where he had fallen, with his left arm bent out at an awkward angle and his mouth gaping. He had expected to hear cheers of triumph and jubilation at his death, but instead hurried footsteps, whispers, and solicitous murmurs filled the air. My lord, my lord, it was Bellatrix's voice, and she spoke as if to a lover. Harry did not dare open his eyes, but allowed his other senses to explore the predicament. He knew that his wand was still stowed beneath his robes because he could feel it pressed against his chest and the ground. A slight cushioning effect in the area of his stomach told him that the invisibility cloak was there also, stuffed out of sight. My lord, that will do, said Voldemort's voice. More footsteps. Several people were backing away from the same spot. Desperate to see what was happening and why, Harry opened his eyes by a millimeter. Voldemort seemed to be getting to his feet. Various Death Eaters were hurrying away from him, returning to the crowd lining the clearing. Bellatrix alone remained behind, kneeling beside Voldemort. Harry closed his eyes again and considered what he had seen. The Death Eaters had been huddled around Voldemort, who seemed to have fallen to the ground. Something had happened when he had hit Harry with the killing curse. Had Voldemort too collapsed? It seemed like it. And both of them had fallen briefly unconscious, and both of them had now returned. My lord, let me... I do not require assistance, said Voldemort coldly, and though he could not see it, Harry pictured Bellatrix withdrawing a helpful hand. The boy. Is he dead? There was complete silence in the clearing. Nobody approached Harry, but he felt their concentrated gaze. It seemed to press him harder into the ground, and he was terrified a finger or an eyelid might twitch. You, said Voldemort, and there was a bang and a small shriek of pain. Examine him. Tell me whether he is dead. Harry did not know who had been sent to verify. He could only lie there with his heart thumping traitorously and wait to be examined but at the same time noting, small comfort though it was, that Voldemort was wary of approaching him, that Voldemort had suspected not all had gone to plan. Hands, softer than he had been expecting, touched Harry's face, pulled back an eyelid, crept beneath his shirt down to his chest, and felt his heart. He could hear the woman's fast breathing. Her long hair tickled his face. He knew that she could feel the steady pounding of life against his ribs. Is Draco alive? Is he in the castle? The whisper was barely audible. Her lips were an inch from his ear. He, her head bent so low that her long hair shielded his face from onlookers. Yes, he breathed back. He felt the hand on his chest contract, 
Her nails pierced him, and then it was withdrawn. She had sat up. He is dead! Narcissa Malfoy called to the watchers, and now they shouted. Now they yelled in triumph and stamped their feet, and through his eyelids, Harry saw bursts of red and silver light shooting into the air in celebration. Still feigning death on the ground, he understood. Narcissa knew that the only way she would be permitted to enter Hogwarts and find her son was as a part of the conquering army. She no longer cared about whether Voldemort won. You see, screeched Voldemort over the tumult, Harry Potter is dead by my hand, and no man alive can threaten me now. Watch. Crucio! Harry had been expecting it, knew his body would not be allowed to remain unsullied upon the forest floor, and must be subjected to humiliation to prove Voldemort's victory. He was lifted into the air, and it took all his determination to remain limp. Yet the pain he expected did not come. He was thrown once, twice, three times into the air. His glasses flew off, and he felt his wand slide a little beneath his robes, but he kept himself floppy and lifeless, and when he fell to the ground for the last time, the clearing echoed with jeers and shrieks of laughter. Now, said Voldemort, we go to the castle and show them what has become of their hero. Who shall drag the body? No, wait. There was a fresh outbreak of laughter, and after a few moments, Harry felt the ground trembling beneath him. You carry him, Voldemort said. He'll be nice and visible in your arms, will he not? Pick up your little friend, Hagrid. And the glasses. Put on the glasses. He must be recognizable. Someone slammed Harry's glasses back onto his face with deliberate force, but the enormous hands that lifted him into the air were exceedingly gentle. Harry could feel Hagrid's arms trembling with the force of his heaving sobs. Great tears splashed down upon him as Hagrid cradled Harry in his arms and Harry did not dare, by a movement or a word, to intimate to Hagrid that all was not, lost, not, all was not yet lost. Move, said Voldemort, and Hagrid stumbled forward, forcing his way through close growing trees. Back through the forest, branches caught at Harry's hair and robes, but he lay quiescent, his mouth lolling open, his eyes shut, and in the darkness... While the Death Eaters crowded all around them, and while Hagrid sobbed blindly, nobody looked to see whether there was a pulse beat in the exposed neck of Harry Potter. The two giants crashed along behind the Death Eaters. Harry could hear trees creaking and falling as they passed. They made so much din that birds rose shrieking into the sky, and even jeers of the Death Eaters were drowned. This victorious procession marched on towards the open ground, and after a while Harry could tell by the lighting of the darkness through his closed eyelids that the trees were beginning to thin. Bane! Hagrid's unexpected bellow nearly forced Harry's eyes open. Happy now, are you? That you didn't fight? You cowardly bunch of nags! Are you happy? Harry Potter's dead! Hagrid could not continue, but broke down in fresh tears. Harry wondered how many centaurs were watching their procession pass. He dared not open his eyes to look. Some of the Death Eaters called insults at the centaurs as they left them behind. A little later... Harry sensed, by the freshening of the air, they had reached the edge of the forest. Stop. Harry thought that Hagrid must have been forced to obey Voldemort's command because he lurched a little, and now a chill settled over them where they stood, and Harry heard the rasping breaths of the Dementors that patrolled the outer trees. They would not affect him now. The fact of his own survival burned inside him, a talisman against them, as though his father's stag kept guardian in his heart. Someone passed close by Harry, and he knew that it was Voldemort himself because he spoke a moment later, his voice magically magnified so that it swelled through the grounds, crashing upon Harry's eardrums. Harry Potter is dead. He was killed as he ran away, trying to save himself 
while you laid down your lives for him. We bring you proof, his body, that your hero is gone. The battle is won. You have lost half your fighters. My Death Eaters outnumber you, and the boy who lived is finished. There must be no more war. Anyone who continues to resist, man, woman, or child, will be slaughtered, as will every member of their family. Come out of the castle now, kneel before me, and you shall be spared. Your parents and children, your brothers and sisters, will live and be forgiven, and you will join me in the new world we shall build together. There was silence in the grounds, and from the castle, Voldemort was so close to him that Harry did not dare open his eyes again. Come, said Voldemort, and Harry heard him move ahead, and Hagrid was forced to follow. Now Harry opened his eyes a fraction. He saw Voldemort striding in front of them, wearing the great snake Nagini around his shoulders, now free of her enchanted cage. But Harry had no possibility of extracting the wand concealed under his robes without being noticed by the Death Eaters, who marched on either side of them through the slow lightning of the darkness. Harry, sobbed Hagrid. Oh, Harry, Harry. Harry shut his eyes tight again. He knew that they were approaching the castle and strained his ears to distinguish above the gleeful voices of the Death Eaters and their trampling footsteps signs of life from those within. Stop! The Death Eaters came to a halt and Harry heard them spreading out in a line facing the open doors of the school. He could see even through his closed eyelids the reddish glow that meant light streamed upon him from the entrance hall. He waited. Any moment, the people for whom he had tried to die would see him lying apparently dead in Hagrid's arms. No! The screen was more terrible because he had never expected or dreamed that Professor McGonagall could make such a sound. He heard another woman laughing nearby and knew that Bellatrix gloried in McGonagall's despair. He squinted again for a single second and saw the open doorway filling with people as the survivors of the battle came out onto the front steps to face their vanquishers and see the truth of Harry's death for themselves. He saw Voldemort standing a little in front of him, stroking Nagini's head with a single white finger. He closed his eyes again. No! No! Harry! Harry! Ron, Hermione, and Ginny's voices were worse than McGonagall's. Harry wanted nothing more than to call back, yet he made himself lie silent, and their cries acting like a trigger, the crowd of survivors took up the cause, screaming and yelling abuse at the Death Eaters until... Silence! cried Voldemort, and there was a bang and a flash of bright light, and silence was forced upon them all. It is over. Set him down, Hagrid, at my feet where he belongs. Harry felt himself lowered onto the grass. You see? said Voldemort, and Harry felt him striding backward and forward right beside the place where he lay. Harry Potter is dead. Do you understand now, deluded ones? He was nothing, ever, but a boy who relied on others to sacrifice themselves for him. He beat you, yelled Ron, and the charm broke, and the defenders of Hogwarts were shouting and screaming again until a second, more powerful bang extinguished their voices once more. He was killed while trying to sneak out of the castle grounds, said Voldemort, and there was relish in his voice for the lie. Killed while trying to save himself, but Voldemort broke off. Harry heard a scuffle and a shout, then another bang and a flash of light and a grunt of pain. He opened his eyes an infinitesimal amount. Someone had broken free of the crowd and charged at Voldemort, and Harry saw the figure hit the ground. Disarmed, Voldemort, throwing the challenger's wand aside, began laughing. And who is this? He said in his soft snake's hiss, Who has volunteered to demonstrate what happens to those who continue to fight when the battle is lost? Bellatrix gave a delighted laugh. It is Neville Longbottom, my lord, the boy who has been giving the Karos so much trouble. 
The son of the Aurors, remember? Ah, uh, yes, I remember, said Voldemort, looking down at Neville, who was struggling back to his feet, unarmed and unprotected, standing in the no-man's land between the survivors and the Death Eaters. But you are of pure blood, aren't you, my brave boy? Voldemort asked Neville, who stood facing him, his empty hands curled in his fists. So what if I am, said Neville loudly. You show spirit and bravery, and you come of noble stock. You will make a very valuable Death Eater. We need your kind, Neville Longbottom. I'll join you when hell freezes over, said Neville. Dumbledore's army, he shouted, and there was an answering cheer from the crowd, whom Voldemort's silencing charm seemed unable to hold. Very well, said Voldemort, and Harry heard more danger in the silkiness of his voice than in his most powerful curse. If that is your choice, Longbottom, we revert to the original plan. On your head, he said quietly, be it. Still washing through his lashes, Harry saw Voldemort wave his wand. Seconds later, out of one of the castle's shattered windows, something that looked like a misshapen bird flew through the half-light and landed in Voldemort's hand. He shook the mildewed object by its pointy end, and it dangled, empty and ragged, the sorting hat. There will be no sorting at Hogwarts school, said Voldemort. There will be no more houses. The emblem, shield, and colors of my noble ancestor Salazar Slytherin will suffice for everyone, won't they, Neville Longbottom? He pointed his wand at Neville, who grew rigid and still, and then forced the hat onto Neville's head so that it slipped down below his eyes. There were movements from the watching crowd in front of them, and as one, the Death Eaters raised their wands, holding the fighters of Hogwarts at bay. Neville here is now going to demonstrate what happens to anyone foolish enough to continue to oppose me, said Voldemort. With a flick of his wand, he caused the sorting hat to burst into flames. Screams split the dawn, and Neville was aflame, rooted to the spot, unable to move, and Harry could not bear it. He must act. But then many things happened at the same moment. They heard an uproar from the distant boundary of the school, as it sounded like hundreds of people came swarming over the out-of-sight walls and pelted towards the castle, uttering loud war cries. At the same time, Grop came lumbering around the side of the castle and yelled, Hagger! His cry was answered by roars from Voldemort's giants. They ran at Grop like bull elephants, making the earth quake. Then came hooves and the twang of bows, and arrows were suddenly falling amongst the Death Eaters who broke ranks, shouting their surprise. Harry pulled the invisibility cloak from inside his robes, swung it over himself, and sprang to his feet as Neville moved too. In one swift, fluid motion, Neville broke free of the body bind curse upon him, the flaming hat fell off of him, and he drew from within its depth something silver, with a glittering, rubied handle. The slash of the silver blade could not be heard over the roar of the oncoming crowd, or the sound of the clashing giants, or the stampeding centaurs, and yet it seemed to draw every eye. With a single stroke, Neville sliced off the great snake's head, which spun high into the air, gleaming in the light flooding from the entrance hall, and Voldemort's mouth was open in a scream of fury that nobody could hear, and the snake's body thudded to the ground at his feet. Hidden beneath the invisibility cloak, Harry cast a shield charm between Neville and Voldemort before the latter could raise his wand. Then, over the screams and roars and the thunderous stamps of the battling giants, Hagrid's yell came loudest of all, Harry! Hagrid shouted. Harry! Where is Harry? Chaos reigned. The charging centaurs were scattering the Death Eaters. Everyone was fleeing the giant's stamping feet. And nearer and nearer thundered the reinforcements that had come from who knew where. Harry saw his great winged centaurs 
I'm sorry. Harry saw great winged creatures soaring around the heads of Voldemort's giants, Thestrals and Buckbeak the Hippogriff, scratching at their eyes while Grop punched and pummeled them, and now wizards, defenders of Hogwarts, and Death Eaters alike were being forced back into the castle. Harry was shooting jinxes and curses at any Death Eater he could see, and they crumpled, not knowing what or who had hit them, and their bodies were trampled by the retreating crowd. Still hidden beneath the invisibility cloak, Harry was buffeted into the entry hall. He was searching for Voldemort and saw him across the room, firing spells from his wand as he backed into the Great Hall, still screaming instructions to his followers as he sent curses flying left and right. Harry cast more shield charms, and Voldemort's would-be victims, Seamus Finnegan and Hannah Abbott, darted past him into the Great Hall where they joined the fight, already flourishing inside it. And now there were more. Even more people storming up the front steps, and Harry saw Charlie Weasley overtaking Horace Slughorn, who was still wearing his emerald pajamas. They seemed to have returned at the head of what looked like the families and friends of every Hogwarts student who remained to fight, along with the shopkeepers and homeowners of Hogsmeade. The centaurs, Bane, Ronan, and Magorian, burst into the hall with a great clatter of hooves, and behind Harry, the door that led to the kitchens was blasted off its hinges, and the house elves of Hogwarts swarmed into the entrance hall, screaming and waving carving knives and cleavers, and at their head, the locket of Regulus Black bouncing on his chest was Creature, his bullfrog's voice audible even above this din. Fight! Fight! Fight for my master, defender of house elves! Fight the Dark Lord in the name of brave Regulus! Fight! They were hacking and stabbing at the ankles and shins of the Death Eaters, their tiny faces alive with malice. And everywhere Harry looked, Death Eaters were folding under sheer weight of numbers, overcome by spells, dragging arrows from wounds, stabbed in the leg by elves, or simply attempting to escape, but swallowed by the oncoming horde. It is, but it was not over yet. Harry sped between duelers, past struggling prisoners, and into the Great Hall. Voldemort was in the center of the battle, and he was striking and smiting all within reach. Harry could not get a clear shot, but fought his way nearer, still invisible, and the Great Hall became more and more crowded as everyone who could walk forced their way inside. Harry saw Yaxley slammed to the floor by George and Lee Jordan, saw Dolahoff fall with a scream at Flitwick's hands, saw Walden and McNair thrown across the room by Hagrid, hit the stone wall opposite, and slide unconscious to the ground. He saw Ron and Neville bringing down Fenrir Greyback. Aberforth stunning Rookwood, Arthur and Percy flooring thickness, and Lucius and Narcissa Malfoy running through the crowd, not even attempting to fight, screaming for their son. Voldemort was now dueling McGonagall, Slughorn, and Kingsley all at once, and there was cold hatred in his face as they wove and duck around him, unable to finish him. Bellatrix was still fighting too, 50 yards away from Voldemort, and like her master, she dueled three at once. Hermione, Ginny, and Luna all battling their hardest, but Bellatrix was equal to them. And Harry's attention was diverted as a killing curse shot so close to Ginny that she missed death by an inch. He changed course, running at Bellatrix rather than Voldemort, but before he had gone a few steps, he was knocked sideways. Not my daughter, you bitch! Mrs. Weasley threw off her cloak as she ran, freeing arms. Bellatrix spun on the spot, roaring with laughter at the sight of her new challenger. Out of my way, shouted Mrs. Weasley to the three girls, and with a swipe of her wand, she began to duel. Harry watched with terror and elation as Molly Weasley's wand slashed and twirled, and Bellatrix's Lestrange smile faltered and became a snarl. Jets of light flew from both wands. The floor around the witch's feet became hot and cracked. Both women were fighting to kill. No, Mrs. Weasley cried as a few students ran forward trying to come to her aid. Get back! Get back! She is mine! 
Hundreds of people now lined the walls watching the two fights. Voldemort and his three opponents, Bellatrix and Molly, and Harry stood invisible, torn between both, wanting to attack, yet protect, unable to be sure that he would not hit the innocent. "'What will happen to your children when I've killed you?' taunted Bellatrix, as mad as her master, capering as Molly's curses danced around her. "'When Mommy's gone the same way as Freddy!' "'You will never touch our children again!' screamed Mrs. Weasley. Bellatrix laughed, the same exhilarated laugh her cousin Sirius had given as he toppled backward through the veal, and suddenly Harry knew what was going to happen before it did. Molly's curse soared beneath Bellatrix's outstretched arms, and hit her squarely in the chest, directly over her heart. Bellatrix's gloating smile froze. Her eyes seemed to bulge. For the tiniest space of time, she knew what had happened. And then she toppled, and the watching crowd roared, and Voldemort screamed. Harry felt as though he turned in slow motion. He saw McGonagall, Kingsley, and Slughorn blasted backwards, flailing and writhing through the air, as Voldemort's fury at the fall of his last Best lieutenant exploded with the force of a bomb. Voldemort raised his wand and directed it at Molly Weasley. Proteo rode Harry, and the shield charm expanded in the middle of the hall, and Voldemort stared around for the source as Harry pulled off the invisibility cloak at last. The yell of shock, the cheers, and the screams on every side of, Harry, he's alive, were stifled at once. The crowd was afraid, and silence fell abruptly, and completely as Voldemort and Harry looked at each other and began at the same moment to circle each other. I don't want anyone else to try to help, Harry said loudly, and in the total silence his voice carried like a trumpet call. It's got to be like this. It's got to be me. Voldemort hissed. Potter doesn't mean that, he said, his red eyes wide. That isn't how he works, is it? Who are you going to use as a shield today, Potter? Nobody, said Harry simply. There are no more Horcruxes. It's just you and me. Neither can live while the other survives. And one of us is about to leave for good. One of us? Jeered Voldemort and his whole body was taut and his red eyes stared. A snake that was about to strike. You think it will be you, do you? The boy who was survived by accidents and because Dumbledore was pulling the strings? Accident was it when my mother died to save me? Asked Harry. They were still moving sideways, both of them in that perfect circle, maintaining the same distance from each other, and for Harry, no face existed but Voldemort's. Accident, when I decided to fight in the graveyard? Accident that I didn't defend myself tonight, and still survived, and returned to fight again? Accidents! screamed Voldemort, but still he did not strike, and the watching crowd was frozen as if petrified. And of the hundreds in the hall, nobody seemed to breathe but they too. Accident and chance and the fact that you crouched and sniveled behind the skirts of greater men and women and permitted me to kill them for you. You won't be killing anyone else tonight, said Harry as they circled and stared in each other's eyes, green into red. You won't be able to kill any of them ever again. Don't you get it? I was ready to die to stop you from hurting these people. But you did not. I meant to, and that's what did it. I've done what my mother did. They're protected from you. Haven't you noticed how none of your spells you put on them are binding? You can't torture them. You can't touch them. You don't learn from your mistakes, Riddle, do you? You dare. Yes, I dare. I know things you don't, Tom Riddle. I know lots of important things that you don't. Want to hear some before you make another big mistake? Voldemort did not speak, but prowled in a circle, 
and Harry knew that what kept him temporarily mesmerized in that bay held back by the faintest possibility that Harry might actually indeed know a final secret. Is it love again? said Voldemort, his snake face jeering. Dumbledore's favorite solution, love, which he claimed conquered death, though love did not stop him falling from the tower and breaking like an old waxwork. Love, which did not prevent me from stamping out your mudblood mother like a cockroach potter, and nobody seems to love you enough to run forward this time and take my curse. So what will stop you from dying now when I strike? Just one thing, said Harry, and they still circled each other, wrapped in each other, held apart by nothing but the last secret. If it is not love that will save you this time, said Voldemort, you must believe that you have magic that I do not, or else a weapon more powerful than mine. I believe both, said Harry, and he saw shock flit across the snake-like face, though it was instantly dispelled. Voldemort began to laugh, and the sound was more frightening than his screams. Humorless and insane echoed across the silent hall. You think you know more magic than I do, he said, than I, than Lord Voldemort, who has performed magic that Dumbledore himself never dreamed of. Oh, he dreamed of it, said Harry, but he knew more than you, knew enough not to do what you've done. You mean he was weak, screamed Voldemort, too weak to dare, too weak to take what might have been his, what will be mine. No, he was cleverer than you, a better wizard, a better man. I brought upon the death of Albus Dumbledore. You thought you did, said Harry, but you were wrong. For the first time, the watching crowd stirred as the hundreds of people around the wall drew breath as one. Dumbledore is dead! Voldemort hurled the words at Harry as though they would cause him an unendurable pain. His body decays in the marble tomb in the grounds of this castle. I have seen it, Potter, and he will not return. Yes, Dumbledore's dead, said Harry calmly, but you didn't have him killed. He chose his own manner of dying, chose him months before he died, arranged the whole thing with the man you thought was your servant. What childish dream is this, said Voldemort, but still he did not strike and his red eyes did not waver from Harry's. Severus Snape wasn't yours, said Harry. Snape was Dumbledore's. Dumbledore's from the moment you started hunting down my mother. And you never realized it, because of the thing you can't understand. You never saw Snape cast Patronus, did you, Riddle? Voldemort did not answer. They continued to circle each other like wolves about to tear each other apart. Snape's Patronus was a doe, said Harry, the same as my mother's, because he loved her for nearly all of his life, from the time when they were children. You should have realized, he said as he saw Voldemort's nostrils flare. He asked you to spare her life, didn't he? He desired her. That was all, sneered Voldemort. But when she had gone, he agreed that there were other women, and of purer blood, worthier of him. Of course he told you that, said Harry. But he was Dumbledore's spy from the moment you threatened her, and he's been working against you ever since. Dumbledore was already dying when Snape finished him. It matters not, shrieked Voldemort, who had followed everywhere with rapt attention, but now let out a cackle of mad laughter. It matters not whether Snape was mine or Dumbledore's, or what petty obstacles they tried to put in my path. I crushed them as I crushed your mother. Snape's supposed great love. Oh, but it all makes sense, Potter, and in ways you do not understand. Dumbledore was trying to keep the Elder Wand from me. He intended that Snape should be the true master of the wand. But I got there ahead of you, little boy. I reached the wand before you could get your hands on it. I understood the truth before you caught it up. I killed Severus Snape three hours ago, and the Elder Wand, the Death Stick, the Wand of Destiny is truly mine. 
Dumbledore's last plan went wrong, Harry Potter. Yeah, it did, said Harry. You're right. But before you try to kill me, I advise you think about what you've done. Think. And try for some remorse, Riddle. What is this? Of all things that Harry had said to him, behind any revelation or taunt, nothing had shocked Voldemort like this. Harry saw his pupils contracted, thin slits, saw the skin around his eyes whiten. It's your one last chance, said Harry. It's all you've got left. I've seen what you'll be otherwise. Be a man. Try. Try for some remorse. You dare! Yes, I dare, said Harry, because Dumbledore's last plan hasn't backfired on me at all. It's backfired on you, Riddle. Voldemort's hand was trembling on the Elder Wand, and Harry gripped Draco's very tightly. The moment he knew was seconds away. The wand still isn't working properly for you because you murdered the wrong person. Severus Snape was never the true master of the Elder Wand. He never defeated Dumbledore. He killed... Aren't you listening? Snape never beat Dumbledore. Dumbledore's death was planned between them. Dumbledore intended to die undefeated, the wand's last true master. If all had been gone to plan, the wand's power would have died with him because it had never been won from him. But then, Potter, Dumbledore as good as he gave... He, but then, Potter, Dumbledore as good as gave me the wand. Voldemort's voice shook with malicious pleasure. I stole the wand from its last master's tomb. I removed it against its last master's wishes. Its power is mine. You still don't get it, Riddle, do you? Possessing the wand isn't enough. Holding it, using it, doesn't make it really yours. Didn't you listen to Ollivander? The wand chooses the wizard. The Elderon recognized a new master before Dumbledore died. Someone who had never even laid a hand on it. The new master removed the wand from Dumbledore against his will, never realizing exactly what he had done, or that the world's most dangerous wand had given him its allegiance. Voldemort's chest rose and fell rapidly, and Harry could feel the curse was coming, building inside the wand pointed at his face. The true master of the Elder Wand was Draco Malfoy. Blank shock showed in Voldemort's face, and for a moment, but then it was gone. But what does it matter, he said softly, even if you are right, Potter, it makes no difference to you and me. You no longer have the Phoenix Swan. We duel on skill alone, and after I have killed you, I can attend to Draco Malfoy. But you're too late, said Harry. You missed your chance. I got there first. I overpowered Draco weeks ago. I took this wand from him. Harry twitched the Hawthorne wand, and he felt the eyes of everyone in the hall upon it. So it all comes down to this, doesn't it, whispered Harry. Does the wand in your hand know its last master was disarmed? Because if it does, I am the true master of the Elder Wand. A red gold glow burst suddenly across the enchanted sky above them as an edge of dazzling sun appeared over the sill of the nearest window. The light hit both of their faces and at the same time, so that Voldemort's wand was suddenly a flaming blur, Harry heard the high voice shriek as he too yelled his best hope to the heavens, pointing Draco's wand. Avada Kedavra! Expelliarmus! There was a bang like a cannon blast and golden flames that erupted between them at the dead center of the circle they had been treading marked the point where the spells collided. Harry saw Voldemort's green jet meet his own spell, saw the Elder Wand fly high, dark against the sunrise, spinning across the enchanted ceiling like the head of Nagini, spinning through the air, 
toward the master it would not kill, who had come to take full possession of it at last. And Harry, with the unerring skill of the seeker, caught the wand in his free hand as Voldemort fell backward, arms splayed, the slit pupils of the scarlet eyes rolling upward. Tom Riddle hit the floor with a mundane finality, his body feeble and shrunken, the white hands empty, the snake-like face vacant and unknowing. Voldemort was dead, killed by his own rebounding curse, and Harry stood with two wands in his hand, staring down at his enemy's shell. One shivering second of silence, the shock of the moment suspended, and then the tumult broke around Harry as the screams and the cheers and the roars of the watcher rent the air. The fierce new sun dazzled the windows as they thundered toward him, and the first to reach him were Ron and Hermione, and it was their arms that were wrapped around him, their incomprehensible shouts that deafened him. Then Ginny, Neville, Luna were there, then all of the Weasleys, and Hagrid, and Kingsley, and McGonagall, and Flitwick, and Sprout, and Harry could not hear a word that anyone was shouting, nor whose hands were seizing him, pulling him, trying to hug some part of him. Hundreds of them pressing in all determined to touch the boy who lived. The reason it was over at last. The sun rose steadily over Hogwarts and the Great Hall blazed with life and light. Harry was an indispensable part of the mingled outpourings of jubilation and mourning, of grief and celebration. They wanted him there with them, their leader and symbol, their savior and their guide, and he had not slept. That he craved the company of only a few seemed not to occur to anyone. He must speak to the bereaved clasp their hands, witness their tears, receive their thanks, hear the news now creeping in from every quarter as the morning drew on that the imperious up and down the country had come back to themselves, that Death Eaters were fleeing or else being captured, that the innocent of Azkaban were being released, and at this very moment that Kingsley Shacklebolt had been named temporary Minister of Magic. They moved Voldemort's body and laid it in a chamber off the Great Hall, away from the bodies of Fred, Tonks, Lupin, Colin Creevy, and 50 others who had died fighting him. McGonagall had replaced the house tables, but nobody was sitting according to the house anymore. They were all jumbled together, teachers and pupils, ghosts and parents, centaurs and house elves, and friends lay recovering in a corner, and Grop peered into a smash window, and people were throwing food into his laughing mouth. After a while, exhausted and drained, Harry found himself sitting on a bench beside Luna. I'd want some peace and quiet if it were me, she said. I'd love some, he replied. I'll distract them all, she said. Use your cloak. And before he could say another word, she had cried, Ooh, look, a blibbering humdinger! And pointed out of the window. Everyone who heard looked around, and Harry slid the cloak up over himself and got to his feet. Now he could move through the hall without interference. He spotted Ginny two tables away. She was sitting with her head on her mother's shoulder. There would be time to talk later. Hours and days and maybe years in which to talk. He saw Neville, the sword of Gryffindor, lying beside his plate as he ate, surrounded by a knot of fervent admirers. Along the aisles, between the tables, he walked, and he spotted the three Malfoys huddled together as though unsure whether or not they were supposed to be there. But nobody was paying them any attention. Everywhere he looked, he saw families reunited, and finally he saw the two whose company he craved the most. "'It's me,' he muttered, crouching down between them. "'Will you come with me?' They stood up at once, and together he, Ron, and Hermione left the Great Hall. Great chunks were missing from the marble staircase, part of the balustrade gone, and rubble and bloodstains occurred every few steps as they climbed. Somewhere in the distance, they could hear Peeves zooming through the corridors, singing a song of victory in his own composition. We did it, we bashed them, we potters the one, 
and Voldy's gone moldy, so now let's have some fun. Really, it gives a feeling for the scope and tragedy of the thing, doesn't it? Said Ron, pushing a, open a door to let Harry and Hermione through. Happiness would come, Harry thought. But at the moment, it was muffled by exhaustion and the pain of losing Fred and Lupin and Tonks pierced him like a physical wound every few steps. Most of all, he felt the most stupendous relief and a longing to sleep. But first, he owed an explanation to Ron and Hermione who had stuck with him for so long and who deserved the truth. Painstakingly, he recounted what he had seen in the Pensieve and what happened in the forest, and they had not even begun to express all their shock and amazement when at last they arrived to the place to which they had been walking, though none of them had mentioned their destination. Since he had last seen it, the gargoyle guarding the entrance to the headmaster's study had been knocked aside. It stood lopsided, looking a little punch drunk, and Harry wondered whether it would be able to distinguish passwords anymore. Can we go up? he asked the gargoyle. Feel free, groaned the statue. They clambered over to him onto the spiral stone staircase that moved upward like an escalator. Harry pushed open the door at the top. He had one brief glimpse of the stone pensieve on the desk where he had left it, and then an ear-splitting noise that made him cry out, thinking of curses and returning Death Eaters and the rebirth of Voldemort. But it was applause. All around the walls, the headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts were giving him a standing ovation. They waved their hats, and in some cases their wigs. They reached up through their frames to grip each other's hands. They danced up and down the chairs in which they had been painted. Dillis Derwent sobbed unashamedly. Dexter Fortescue was waving his ear trumpet. And Phineas Nagellus called in his high reedy voice, And let it be known that Slytherin House played its part. Let our contribution not be forgotten. But Harry had eyes only for the man who stood at the largest portrait directly behind the headmaster's chair. Tears were sliding down from beneath the half-moon spectacles onto the long silver beard and the pride and gratitude emanating from him filled Harry with the same balm as a phoenix song. At last, Harry held up his hands and the portraits fell respectfully silent, beaming and mopping their eyes and waiting eagerly for him to speak. He directed his words at Dumbledore, however, and chose them with enormous care. Exhausted and bleary-eyed though he was, he, make, he must make one last effort, seeking one last piece of advice. That thing that was hidden in the snitch, he began. I dropped it in the forest. I don't know exactly where, but I'm not going to go looking for it again. Do you agree? My dear boy, I do, said Dumbledore, while his fellow pictures looked confused and curious. A wise and courageous decision, but no less than I would have expected of you. Does anyone else know where it fell? No one, said Harry, and Dumbledore nodded his satisfaction. I'm going to keep Ignotus's present, though, said Harry, and Dumbledore beamed. But of course, Harry, it is yours forever until you pass it on. And then there's this. Harry held up the Elder Wand, and Ron and Hermione looked at it with a reverence that, even his befuddled and sleep-deprived state, Harry did not like to see. I don't want it, said Harry. What? said Ron loudly. Are you mental? I know it's powerful, said Harry wearily, but I was happier with mine. So, he rummaged in the pouch, hung around his neck, and pulled out the two halves of Holly, still just connected by the finest thread of phoenix feather. Hermione had said that they, would, they could not be repaired, that the damage was too severe. All he knew was that if this did not work, nothing would. He laid the broken wand upon the headmaster's desk, touched it with the very tip of the elder wand, and said, Reparo! As his wand resealed, 
Red sparks flew out of its end. Harry knew that he had succeeded. He picked up the holly and phoenix wand and felt a sudden warmth in his finger as though wand and hand were rejoicing at their reunion. I'm putting the elder wand, he told Dumbledore, who was watching him with enormous affection and admiration, back where it came from. It can stay there. If I die a natural death like Ignotus, its power will be broken, won't it? The previous master will never have been defeated, and that'll be the end of it. Dumbledore nodded. They smiled at each other. Are you sure? said Ron. There was a faintest trace of longing in his voice as he looked at the Elder Wand. I think Harry's right, said Hermione quietly. The wand's more trouble than it's worth, said Harry. And quite honestly, he turned away from the painted portraits, thinking now only of the four-poster bed lying waiting for him in Gryffindor Tower and wondering whether Creature might bring him a sandwich there. I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. And that is the conclusion of chapter twenty, or chapter 36, A Flaw in the Plan. Chase, go ahead and give book. us some of your takeaways on that one. Yeah, uh, I mean, basically the whole thing <laughs> was one big giant uh, takeaway. Uh, the first thing, <clears throat> excuse me there, the first thing that was really, I guess, uh, take away for me was the fact that you know Narcissa uh, goes up to Harry and whispers like is Draco alive and then says he's dead so it really shows how their characters have really come along from where they were and she just didn't care about the battle anymore she just wanted her son back but she's always cared about Draco so um, very interesting to see that her play a big role like that in the changing of tides um, of course, Voldemort's still a tool, and he thinks Harry's dead, but he's going to crucio the body. <laughs> That's pretty screwed up, but whatever. <laughs> so that was pretty messed up. And then, of course, you have that big moment uh, when they come back. Neville has this huge moment, right? And it was just so cool how uh, so creative what J.K. Rowling decided to do. And he waved his wand and the sorting hat came out. So what a kind of full circle moment for the sorting hat. And uh, he inflames it. So, um, it, it, wow. Like, what a moment, like, torturing Neville. But then, of course, he has this big moment and uh, the sword comes out later on and he cuts Nagini's head off. And he's the one that does it. Just really uh, exactly how... Harry was kind of uh, warning him, look for the snake. So it really brings a full circle moment for his character there. Uh, he kind of always has these moments, too, where he kind of comes out of out of nowhere from left field trying to save the day. Uh, but usually it never pans out. Like, if you go to my favorite book, Order of the Phoenix, he tried to do that shit, but it didn't work out. Well, now it actually worked out for him. So that was a pretty full circle moment there, and it played a big moment in the momentum change. Just like we were talking about where I finished the last chapter, you know, or where you finished the first chapter. It's kind of was still that moment where you were just trying to tie the game because they were still one up on you. And now it's tied. Well, this was the game changer here. Uh, so that was a big moment for Neville. Um, then kind of uh, this is when, you know, we go into really the big cle uh, peak climax. You know, Harry, uh, of course, he jumps out of. Hagrid's arms and all that and runs off but pulls off the invisibility cloak and all that stuff happens with that uh, big moment of the Death Eaters going back and forth and a big battle there of course uh, 
I did think it was cool. You saw like Flitwick and Kingsley Shacklebolt, all these people going back and forth. But the big battle on here, in my opinion, was you know Molly and Bellatrix Lestrange. And I always give Bellatrix props. Granted, she was going against kids. I didn't think them to really ever play much of a part. But she was taking on Looney, uh, Looney Luna, <laughs> Luna, Jenny, and Hermione. So I mean, you would think like you know. They're not exactly the dumbest people. It's not like she was taking on Ron. <laughs> so, I mean, it's still a pretty big bite, and she was just not even phased at all. And then Molly busts in there and kind of really uh, avenges, I would say, calling on an Avenger to avenge kind of Fred's death in a way, maybe a little bit, but really standing up for Ginny, which I thought the movie did really well in this part. I had a lot of problems with it, but we'll get into that next week. Um Ron and Neville bringing down Fenrir Greyback. He can suck it. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, uh, of course, you know, you, this is, of course, you have kind of like all the back and forth with the different fights. But I thought the biggest one was Bellatrix there. And um, at this, besides the one I'm about to talk about, <laughs> the biggest one <laughs> is the one with Harry and Voldemort. So, uh, and everything kind of comes to a close where all the bridges are tied here. And, you know, you're, we were always kind of wondering, like, is, like, who, like, did the, it, did it just its loyalty die with Dumbledore? Because we knew Voldemort wasn't the master of the Elder One now. And, uh, you know, what we've really predicted from this point is verified when, Harry says that Draco was the master of the wand, and then when he disarmed him, that's when he became the owner of the Elder Wand. And of course, you know, he even gives him like one more chance, and he doesn't want to go for it. And he keeps saying, you know, it was because his mom's love, all this. And he had that shield over him. But of course, Voldemort doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't have any remorse. He shoots the Vada Kedavra spell because that's the only spell he knows, apparently. And uh, Harry shoots the classic, you know, you got to end with the most prone. It's his, it's Harry's Kamehameha wave. <laughs> he uses Expelliarmus. It explodes. You have that Dragon Ball Z moment like you talked about in your Game of Thrones rewrite <laughs> that happened between Viserion and Drogon. But now it's uh, Voldemort versus Harry, you know, the big battle that we've been seeing coming all this time after all this time always was going to happen and uh then at the end here of course uh voldemort a big takeaway for me one we'll get into differences later this is something i didn't like about the movie but like his body is still there and collapses and they to show that you know he didn't have the respect he started this fight he shouldn't be next to the fallen uh i always use the words the fallen like our heroes here that didn't make it um, and they moved his body away from all of them. Um, so that's what I really had there. And then, of course, it all comes to a close was Harry goes back to the back to Dumbledore's office, um, talks to the portrait, tells Dumbledore, you know, no one should really have the right for the Elder One. So he's going to uh, put it back where it belongs with its, you know, the person that originally had it. And then he's leaving the Resurrection Stone in the forest because you know, no one should have the right to bring people back from the dead. Um, and it kind of is a very full circle moment for 
the Deathly Hallows because, you know, you had the problem with the three brothers before. So Ignatius Peverell is the only one that really did things right, which is why he greeted death like an old friend and was able to pass down the invisibility cloak. But the other two, that's why they didn't last long with their objects, right? And then there was, there was never one of them that was ever really a true master of death because they didn't have all three. Well, now you have Harry that does have all three, who is the true master of death here, but he realizes no one should have uh, power like that, which kind of is a full circle moment for Dumbledore when he was saying as like a headmaster, you know, those that really don't desire power are the ones that should be in those powerful positions. So it really just shows Harry is really the true master of death here. Um, and then, you know, just like that quote you said on uh, uh, page 749 at the bottom, the wands are more trouble than they're worth, said Harry. And quite honestly, I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. And it just is that wrapping up of everything, the Damon Wall, as they say, which is, you know, re the resolving of all of it. And, and now everything's clear. You have that peaceful moment. And this is the exact way it should end. It's not my favorite book, but it's you really couldn't ask for a better ending that way with the way everything worked out. What about you, man? I think Kanye West said it best. No one man should have all that power. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, just let me go through uh, my takeaways for it. Starting back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, Voldemort collapsed and was rendered unconscious during that time as well as Harry. So already you know something didn't really go to plan. Uh, Narcissa lies to Voldemort and tells him that Harry is dead. How would it have turned out if Voldemort had sent a different Death Eater to inspect him? I wonder, because like, she's like, the only one that would have been like, a, a, like willing to lie to Voldemort just because she wants to know if Draco's alive and enter the castle. Like, just on pure chance, like, what are the odds? You know, he's got, what, 50-some-odd Death Eaters with him? You know, any other one would have been like, dude, he's still alive. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So that was <laughs> yeah. just a question I had. But anyways, uh, it was important to notate that the Cruciatus curse didn't work on Harry. And that's actually a foreshadow, right? He said, like, his, mm -hmm. his body was thrown in the air, but the pain he expected didn't come. So that's about to be a foreshadow right. of what kind of we find out in just a little bit. Um, Hagrid insults Bane and the centaurs for being cowards and not fighting. I think that kind of galvanizes them towards the end where, you know, they ended up joining the battle. Uh, Voldemort tells the school that Harry's dead and that he was killed running away trying to save himself. He did that to demoralize the resistance, right? Nothing, nothing would demoralize these people worse than Harry trying to run away from the battle when they all believed in him. So that's what he tried to do is, you know, crush their spirit. That's how you end a rebellion, right? Well, uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out for Voldemort. And then, like I said, <laughs> Neville, I have this one here. Neville was brave as a motherfucker, and he tried to bum-rush Voldemort, like, sprint right at him. And, and so Voldemort, like, like, bang, and knocked him to the ground. And then, you know, you had that uh, moment where Voldemort's silence charm fails to hold. Like, he tells everyone to, because, like, uh, Neville yelled, Dumbledore's army! And then he, like, silenced them all. <laughs> but the silencing charm didn't hold, which is kind of creeping up to that full circle that I'll talk about why the Cruciatus Curse didn't take hold on Harry either. Because, you know, you know, some people don't learn from their past mistakes. Uh, from there, Voldemort seizes the sorting hat and announces there will only be one house, which is his own house, Slytherin. And that's when we have the centaurs from the forest. They come rushing and they attack the Death Eaters. So, reason why I noted that this is being important. Remember, centaurs stay out of all battles. They want nothing to do with stuff. They think that they're superior in, in, in their intellect. They read stuff in the stars and they don't get involved. That's centaurs' whole thing. 
But Hagrid galvanized them by basically calling them cowards and like, you know what, you, you guys brought along this because you didn't help. And guess what? The centaurs came to the aid and answered the call. Uh, it reminded me, I don't want to get too far ahead of something we're going to do later on in season two, but uh, on the fifth morning, look to first light at the dawn. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> uh, from there, uh, this is cool. One of my favorite parts. I do like how they did it in the, uh, the film. We'll talk about it next week, but uh, Neville pulled the sword out of the Gryffindor, the sword of Gryffindor out of the sorting hat and decapitates Nagini. So now, like Jay said, we were tied. We got one body left between Voldemort, has no Horcruxes remaining, right? Because Harry was that final Horcrux. So now all Horcruxes are gone. It's just Voldemort's piece of soul that's in his body himself. The fight proceeds to the Great Hall. I also thought it was cool because not only did the Centaurs enter the fight, they said that the, like Bill, I'm sorry, not Bill, Charlie and uh, another one of the and Slughorn. Charlie and Slughorn brought people in that were the family and friends of the, the fighters of Hogwarts and the people from Hogsmeade. So Charlie and Slughorn brought in some reinforcements. It was badass. Uh, Neville, I'm sorry, uh, the fight proceeds into the Great Hall. Creature even galvanizes the house elves. When's the last time you saw a Creature like, galvanize anyone? Like He was ready to fight to the death with him. So it was great that we got the house elves battling. It was every single creature, I mean obviously the goblins didn't take part in this, but some of the most of the creatures that we hear about throughout the series all taking part in this Wizarding War to finally overthrow the biggest oppressor of them all, Lord Voldemort. So I thought that was really big. Uh, another badass moment, you talked about it a little bit, but Voldemort was dueling McGonagall, Slughorn, and Kingsley all at once. And this is just yeah. him with the one piece of his soul remaining. So if any one of those three, probably some of the best duelists, right? Uh, Slughorn yeah. was a very well-respected. McGonagall was a top-tier duelist back in her day. And Kingsley Shacklebolt might be the most powerful wizard alive today outside of Voldemort since Dumbledore died. None of yeah. them could touch Voldemort. And that was crazy to me. And then to your point, Bellatrix was doing the same thing, doing her mighty Ginny and Luna. Uh, and Bellatrix missed Ginny with the killing curse by an inch. So we almost lost Ginny on top of yeah. every other like Weasley tragedy that we've seen in this damn series. Uh, then we talk about Mrs. Weasley. She takes on Bellatrix one-on-one. -on -one, and you say it's a full-circle moment, her avenging Fred's death. Shit, I'd say it's a full-circle moment because Bellatrix got cocky since she knew that she was a superior duelist and got yeah, caught serious. and killed by Mrs. Weasley's spell. Just like back in Order of the Phoenix, Sirius knew that he was a superior duelist to her and he got cocky and Bellatrix caught him with a smell, spell that knocked him into the veal and killed him. So yeah, that it was the it same is. laughter with outstretched arms. They were cousins after all, too. That's a full circle, man. That's a full circle for your ass, bro. They yeah, both did the same thing. They're related. They were they were better than the person they were dueling, and they got arrogant, left their arms open, and boom, same sort of deal. And that's what happened. But comes around, goes around, baby. And now like, from there, Voldemort was about to kill Mrs. Weasley, and that's when Harry finally reveals himself for the final showdown. See, when you mentioned, you mentioned it talking about the film aspect you say you jumped out of Hagrid's arms that only happened in the film in the book remember he was laid down at the ground beneath the Lord like by Voldemort's feet yeah remember, like Hagrid yeah. had to put okay, him down yeah. to the ground so like and then that's when like when all the, the um, chaos happened around him when the centaurs came in and the reinforcements that Charlie and Slughorn brought in that's when Harry took advantage and put the invisibility cloak on himself well now he revealed himself and we've got the final showdown and the full circle of the fucking series Harry died willingly <laughs> to save the people in Hogwarts, just as his mother died to save Harry all those years ago. That same protection means Voldemort cannot hurt any of them, thwarted by the same magic that caused his downfall the first time around. So Harry slams Voldemort with the truth bomb and tells him that Snape was Dumbledore's man the whole time, not his, 
and the revelation about the Elder One not being, uh, Voldemort not being the Elder One's master now either. And then again, another big full circle of this series too. This is like neck and neck. Voldemort was killed by his own rebounding curse once and for all. Voldemort's gone. And then Harry decides what to do with each of the Hallows. You mentioned that. I won't touch more on it. But the last one I have, really nicely, it's just beautiful moment. Kind of how Harry entered the wizard world. This is how we leave the wizarding world just for now until we get this 19 years later that Chase is going to take for the epilogue. But using the Elder Wand as its rightful master, Harry repairs his original wand. And just like when he grabbed the wand yeah. in Ollivander's shop all those years ago, the red sparks flew through it and he felt at home with his own wand. And that is yeah. how the story really ends great. up until the epilogue that Chase will take from here. So those are my takeaways. Chase, go ahead and take it away with the epilogue, and then we'll get into our top five magical creatures, our plot holes, and our interesting facts. Yeah, man. Uh, this next part, I'm glad she did this because you kind of always wonder what happened. Um, but this is where I say it ends. Like, all this cursed child shit, that's not canon, in my opinion. <laughs> but this is where it ends. This is good stuff. So 19 years later. Actually, I looked this up. That would have been in 2017. <laughs> so we just met, not too long ago. Go back in time a little bit. So 19 years later. Autumn seemed to arrive suddenly that year. The morning of the first September was crisp and golden as an apple, and as the little family bobbed across the rumbling road toward the great sooty station, the fumes of car exhaust and the breath of pedestrians sparked like cobwebs in the cold chair. Two large cages rattled on top of the laden trolleys, and parents were pushing. The owls inside them hooted indignantly, and the red-headed girl trailed tearfully behind her brothers, clutching her father's arm. It won't be long, and you'll be going too, Harry told her. Two years, sniffed Lily. I want to go now. The commuters stared curiously at the owls as the family wove its way toward the barrier between platforms 9 and 10. Albus's voice drifted back to Harry over the surrounding clamor. His sons had resumed the argument they had started in the car. I won't. I won't be in Slytherin. James, give it a rest, said Jenny. I only said he might be, said James, grinning at his younger brother. There's nothing wrong with that. He might be in Slith. But James caught his mother's eye and fell silent. The five potters approached the barrier with a slightly cocky look over her shoulders at his younger brother. Uh, as his younger brother, younger brother, James took the trolley from his mother and broke into a run. A moment later, he had vanished. You'll write to me, won't you? Albus asked his parents immediately, capitalizing on the momentary absence of his brother. Every day, if you want us to, said Jenny. Not every day, said Albus quickly. James says most people only get letters from the home about once a month. We wrote to James three times a week last year, said Jenny. And you don't want to believe everything he tells you about Hogwarts, Harry put in. He likes a laugh, your brother. Side by side, they pushed the second trolley forward, gathering speed. As they reached the barrier, Albus winced, but no collision came. Instead, the family emerged onto the platform nine and three quarters, which was obscured by the thick white steam that was pouring from Scarlet Hogwarts Express. Indistinct figures were swarming through the mist into which James had already disappeared. Where are they? asked Albus anxiously, peering at the hazy forms they passed as they made their way down the platform. We'll find them, said Jenny reassuringly, but the vapor was dense, and it was difficult to make out anybody's faces. Detached from their owners, voices sounded unnaturally loud, 
Harry thought he heard Percy discoursing loudly on the broomstick regulations and was quite glad of the excuse not to stop and say hello. I think that's a mal, said Jenny suddenly. A group of four people emerged from the mist standing alongside the very last last carriage. Their faces only came into focus when Harry, Jenny, Lily, and Albus had drawn right up to them. Hi, said Albus, sounding immensely relieved. Rose, who was already wearing her brand new Hogwarts robes, beamed at them. Parked all right, then? Ron asked Harry. I did. Hermione didn't believe I could pass a muggle driving test, did you? She thought I'd have to confund the examiner. No, I didn't, said Hermione. I had complete faith in you. As a matter of fact, I did confund them, Ron whispered to Harry, as together they lifted Albus's trunk and owl onto the train. I only forgot to look in the wing mirror, and let's face it, I can use a super sensory charm for that. Back on the platform, they found Lily and Hugo, Rose's younger brother, having an animated discussion about which house they would be sorted into when they finally went to Hogwarts. If you're not in Gryffindor, we'll disinherit you, said Ron. But no pressure. Ron! Lily and Hugo laughed, but Albus and Rose looked solemn. He doesn't mean it, said Hermione and Ginny, but Ron was no longer paying attention, catching Harry's eye. He nodded covertly to a point some 50 yards away. The steam had thinned for a moment, and three people stood in a sharp relief against the shifting mist. Look who it is. Draco Malfoy was standing there with his wife and his son, and son a dark coat buttoned up to his throat. His hair was receding somewhat, which emphasized the pointed chin. The new boy resembled Draco as much as Albus resembled Harry. Draco caught sight of Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Jenny staring at them, nodded curtly, and turned away. Again. So that's little Scorpius, said Ron under his breath. Make sure you beat him in every test, Rosie. Thank God you inherited your your mother's brains. Ron, for heaven's sake, said Hermione, half stern, half amused. Don't try to turn them against each other before they've even started school. You're right. Sorry, said Ron. But unable to help himself, he added, Don't get too friendly with him, though, Rosie. Granddad Weasley would never forgive you if you married a pureblood. Hey! James had reappeared. He had divested himself of his trunk owl and trolley and was evidently bursting with news. Teddy's back there, he said breathlessly, pointing back over his shoulder into the billowing clouds of steam. Just seen him! And guess what he's doing? Snogging Victoria! He gazed up at the adults, evidently disappointed by the lack of reaction. Our Teddy? Teddy Lupin? Snogging on Victory? Our cousin? And I asked Teddy what he was doing. You interrupted them, said Jenny. You are so like Ron. And he said he'd come to see her off. And then he told me to go away. He's snogging her, James added, as though worried he had not made himself clear. Oh, it would be lovely if they got married, whispered Lily ecstatically. Teddy would really be part of the family then. He already comes around for dinner about four times a week, said Harry. Why don't we just invite him to live with us and have done with it? Yeah, said James enthusiastically. I don't mind sharing with Al. Teddy, could have my room? No, said Harry firmly. You and Al share a room only when I want the house demolished. He checked the battered old watch that had once been Fabian Pruitt's. It's nearly 11. You better get on board. Don't forget to give Neville our love. Jenny told James as he as she hugged him. Mum, I can't give a professor love. But you know Neville, James rolled his eyes. Outside, yeah, but as school's school, he's Professor Longbottom, isn't he? 
I can't walk into Herbology and give him love. Shaking his head at his mother's foolishness, he vented his feelings by aiming a kick at Albus. See you later, Al. Watch out for Thestrals. I thought they were invisible. You said they were invisible! But James merely laughed, permitted his mother to kiss him, gave his father a fleeting hug, and then leapt onto the rapidly filling train. They saw him wave, then sprint away up the corridor to find his friends. Thestrals are nothing to worry about, Harry told Albus. They're gentle things. There's nothing scary about them. Anyway, you won't be going up to school in carriages. You'll be going in boats. Jenny kissed Albus goodbye. See you at Christmas. Bye, Al, said Harry as his son hugged him. Don't forget, Hagrid's invited you to tea next Friday. Don't mess with Peeves. Don't tell anyone until you've learned how. And don't let James wind, wind, up, wind you up. What if I'm in Slytherin? The whisper was for, the fa was for his father alone, and Harry knew that only that moment of departure could have forced Albus to reveal how great and sincere the fear really the fear was. Harry crouched down so that Albus's face was slightly above his own. Alone of Harry's three children, Albus had inherited Lily's eyes. Albus Severus. Harry said quietly so that nobody but Jenny could hear, and she was tactful enough to pretend to be waving to Rose, who was now on the train. You were named for two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was in Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. But just say, then Slytherin House will have gained an excellent student, won't it? It doesn't matter to us, Al. But if it matters to you, you'll be able to choose Gryffindor over Slytherin. The Sorting Hat takes your choice into account. Really? It did for me, said Harry. He had never told any of his children that before. He saw the wonder in Albus's face when he said it, but now the doors were slamming all along the scarlet train, and the blurred outlines of the parents were swarming forward for final kisses, last-minute reminders. Albus jumped into the carriage, and Jenny closed the door behind him. Students were hanging from the windows nearest them. A great number of faces, both on the train and off, seemed to be turned toward Harry. "'Why are they all staring?' demanded Albus, as he and Rose crammed around to look at the other students. Don't let it worry you, said Ron. It's me. I'm extremely famous. Albus, Rose, Hugo, and Lily laughed. The train began to move, and Harry walked alongside it, watching his son's thin face already ablaze with excitement. Harry kept smiling and waving, even though it was like a little bereavement, watching his son glide away from him. The last trace of steam evaporated in the autumn air. The train rounded a corner. Harry's hand was still raised in farewell. He'll be all right, murmured Jenny. As Harry looked at her, he lowered his hand absentmindedly and touched the lightning scar on his forehead. I know he will. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. And that... Dun, 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 dun. We have made it to the very end, ladies and gentlemen. That is the end of the Harry Potter books, all seven years from Sorcerer's Stone to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Harry, the master of death that chose to be better than all the rest and not take the power, has lived a peaceful life <laughs> and has never had a problem ever again. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Nelly, your takeaways from that epilogue, man. Yes, sir. Uh, first takeaway, Harry has two sons and a daughter. Oldest son is James. 
Younger son is Albus, and the youngest child is his daughter Lily. Albus is in his first year and is nervous about being placed in Slytherin. Uh, it seems like James is the prankster of the family, almost like the Fred and George type, always kind of picking on his younger brother. So a little takeaway mm-hmm. that I had. Uh, Hermione and Ron had two kids, a daughter and a son, Rose and Hugo. We had a brief mention of Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius. Uh, Ron already trying to turn the kids against Draco's son. Thought that was pretty funny. He said, make sure you beat them in every test. Good thing you got your mom's <laughs> brains because I'm an idiot. <laughs> so thought that was funny. Uh, Teddy Lupin, obviously Remus and Tonk's son. Uh, he's 19 years old. He's kissing Victoire, in which I'm assuming is Bill and Fleur's daughter, because that's a French name. So I'm assuming yeah. Victoire is, uh, is Bill and Fleur's daughter, and uh, Teddy Lupin, they're kissing in the back of the bus. <laughs> so uh, oh, I thought yeah. that was cool. <laughs> Harry, yeah. Harry, I thought this was nice too. Harry kept the watch Mrs. Weasley gave him at his coming of age birthday. So he still had, mm-hmm. remember that watch that still was like Fabian Pruitt's yeah. back in the day? Uh, they made a good point to make sure that we knew that she uh, he kept that watch even into his adulthood life. Uh, Neville is a new herbology teacher, which is full circle since it was what he was best at at school was herbology. That was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry made Albus middle name Severus and told him that he may have been the bravest man. The, well, he said the bravest man that he ever knew was a Slytherin. He didn't flat out say that Severus was, um, you know, the, you know, but he didn't go ahead and tell him that Severus Snape was the bravest man. He said the bravest, one of the bravest men I knew was a Slytherin. So I thought that was pretty cool. Gave him some reassurance that even if he's not in Gryffindor, they're still going to love him regardless. And then obviously the last takeaway that I have, the last sentence basically, is the scar no longer hurts Harry. That's the last takeaway yeah. from the epilogue, man. What did you uh, take away from the epilogue? Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed those. The only other one I had was kind of a full circle moment for Ron was he was taking his muggle driving exam. <laughs> so I thought that was cool because <laughs> back in Chamber of Secrets, people forget he drove his dad's muggle car with flying enchantments but ran it into the whomping willow (laughs) so uh i thought it was pretty cool but um yeah it 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 was it was good i think it was a solid ending um we really couldn't ask for anything more from jk rowling because not only did it end perfectly with the last chapter the flaw in the plan which was the real ending of the book but um, now we got to see what it's like later on in their lives. And now, just like we've talked about on the show so many times from the beginning, when <laughs> had a year never had any problems for Harry. <laughs> like every year was always a problem for Harry. Um, and this uh, now shows that 19 years later, for 19 years, his scar has never burned which we're assuming caused pretty much all these problems here so i'm uh sure jenny argues maybe back and forth every now and then you know he catches cho down the street you know he's looking at her some kind of way but for the major problems are gone and uh i even wrote down the end here and this is it um and uh what a think of how much they really think of Albus Dumbledore and Snape to name your son after that so I thought it was uh, really powerful for that and you know this is everything we ever wanted and in my opinion it's the best fantasy fiction book series of all time and that's just my opinion on it (laughs) what about you man yeah one thing I want to add and this isn't to the epilogue this is something I was thinking about bringing up after I took the first chapter today 
But you remember like when we thought Harry might die in this? I wanted to save it to the very, yeah. very end to kind of give my thought process. Because remember I told you guys, I didn't read it right away. So I thought, because this would have been genius too. And this is how good J.K. Rowling is as a writer. Remember that the prophecy could have referred to either Harry or Neville. So I thought she was yeah. going to pull a last-minute swap on us, and Neville was actually the chosen one all along, and it was going to be him that took out Voldemort at the very end. So I just want to bring everyone's attention awesome. to that. Very, very, yeah. yeah, that could have very easily been the case. And, and though Neville did play his big part and killed one of the Horcruxes in Nagini, I really thought, like, you know, if Harry's dead, all of a sudden, what Voldemort thought, his own, you know, cruel, like, ignorance... And the thinking that Harry was the chosen one all along, it could have been Neville, and Neville was the one that brings about his downfall. Someone who was overlooked all those years, someone who was clumsy, someone no one would ever perceive as a threat, could have been the one to bring down the darkest wizard of all time. So in my mind, I thought that's where it was going when I stopped after that chapter back in 2007, but it didn't go that way. I liked the way that it went. I just wanted to bring people's attention to how differently things could have been portrayed just by how great she wrote it. She wrote it so well that it could have had multiple... Uh, ways to end and it still would have came full circle either way so i thought that was pretty badass so uh but yes i do agree with you in terms of the harry potter series being the best fantasy fiction franchise in terms of a book series that i've ever read uh you know i'm a big lord of the rings guy but the difference is is that and i don't want to i'm not bashing it because it's well written a lot of times you can find yourself kind of getting lulled to sleep in those long yeah. novels for Lord of the Rings, and they're shorter books too. Like none of them are the size of you know this. Like this being like 750 yeah. pages, and talk about Order of the Phoenix, 870 pages. At no point was I really bored during any of this, you know. And another, I have some other problems with Lord of the Rings. I'll get into it more, but that was that would be one of its contenders. You know, Aragon was a really good contender up until probably the last 100 pages of the last book, Inheritance. Uh, so like, <laughs> like like no matter what's happened, Harry Potter stood the test of time. And it goes to show, as there are still things coming out, she's still, you know, building this universe even years after the books have ended because there's such a big fan craving for more Harry Potter. So, yeah, man, I'm with you. I do think that Harry Potter series is the best fantasy fiction franchise created to date. Uh, Yeah, man. So, with that being said, should we roll into our top five magical creatures for this book and then go to plot holes and then interesting facts yeah let's do it i'll say one quick thing about what you're saying i think the other contender was game of thrones which you brought up before but george r R. martin no telling how long that's going to be and i think it kind of in my opinion it stopped becoming a contender when he got so behind on that and then the show took another turn um i think it had a chance to compete with it with the following game of thrones what it had um, and how well the books were written and there were a lot of those books and they were big but yeah it's uh it even says something to jk rowling just like you're saying because think about it these books started out in the 90s and they were for children like they were these were made for children at the beginning i even brought up um on the show one time uh i think it wasn't an interesting facts i just mentioned it in passing but the show got approved because J.K. Rowling reached out to Bloomsbury, and one of the editors for Bloomsbury thought her synopsis was really good, and let her let his sorry my mistake his uh, four year old daughter read it. And on the birthday card to her dad, she said, "You need to read this book because it was so good." And that's why it got approved. But it's just amazing to see how it grew over the years too. And I think that's where 
Lord of the Rings and some of the other franchises fall because even though it was a lot, like, you know, it was only three books, even though they were very detailed and it was well-written, and even Game of Thrones, like, that Game of Thrones audience is mainly for a lot of adults, whereas this has really grabbed us from the point we were kids and is still relative today to being adults, and that's just what I'll say about that. But, yeah, I'll let you go ahead and uh, jump into Magical Creatures, man. We haven't done Magical Creatures in a long time. Yeah, it's the end of the book, so it's our time to get our top five of what we found in the book. I do want to add one more point, just one last point to what you were saying about Game of Thrones being a contender. One reason I don't really view it as much of a contender is because, as someone, I didn't even hear about the books until the show became a thing. You know what I mean? Like, there was no one waiting in line, sold out, to wait for, like, the new Game of Thrones book. Like, you know what I mean? And no one really knew about Game of Thrones until the show came out, where with this series, Mm -hmm. like, people were on the Harry Potter thing from the day. And like you were mentioning... It's more for adults, you know, the, the Game of Thrones series, where this kind of captures everybody, your childhood aspect, it gets dark as for adults, the reading improves as the series goes on. So it's the only thing with Game of Thrones is I feel like this, the, the TV series is more famous than the actual books are. I think if you took a poll, yeah. more people have went ahead and watched the show versus have read the books to where the books are up to right now. I almost guarantee I agree it. agree completely. The show didn't start yeah. until 2011. So the mm-hmm. show didn't show, start until 2011. The first Game of Thrones book was written in the 1990s. So yeah. like it's really crazy <laughs> exactly. that it took that long for it to even get even get noticed. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the top five magical creatures. We're going to do it like this, folks, like we do all the time. We're both going to go from five to one, and we're going to bounce one back and forth. So I'll go ahead and start. My number five, top five magical creature found in Deathly Hallows. I didn't want to do it, but this book didn't really give me a lot of choices because there weren't a lot of magical creatures found in it that we haven't yeah. already came across. But I had to put the Ukrainian Iron Belly Bank Dragon on this list. I didn't want to simply for the fact that we put dragons on our list before. But yeah. this is the first time, and the only reason I'll defend my choice of putting it on this list is because even though we've seen dragons, this is the first time we got to see people riding on dragons in the series with Harry, Ron, and Hermione escaping from Gringotts. And plus, it's a different type of dragon than we've heard about so far, too. So, with that being said, I wish I didn't have to put another dragon on my list, but that's where I'm at right now. My number five, top five magical creature of this book is the Ukrainian Iron Belly Dragon found in Gringotts Bank. I'm surprised you ranked it that low, though. <laughs> that was it's a badass creature man like i was a badass it broke out of that vault it was pretty badass but that's okay that's okay i agree with you i think it's great i'm just surprised that it got ranked that low mine was uh you probably won't even remember this uh because i just didn't have a lot to work with in this book but there is a quote in there that says luna is out fishing for freshwater plimpies so freshwater plimpies came in at number five uh we talked about them on interesting facts for a little bit but basically what they are is they're the small round magical fish they actually have two legs that are webbed feet uh they live in deep lakes but the big reason i put them on here is because mer people actually consider them a pest even though they're not dangerous so they have this big conflicts with mermaids where they actually wish they weren't even in anywhere in the lakes. So I didn't have a lot to work with. But uh, for that reason, I put freshwater plimpies as number five. What about you, man? <laughs> What's number four? Going into number four for me, I went back and checked all of my things to make sure I didn't already bring this individual up. 
but he is a magical creature. He is the fabled poltergeist. Peeves himself makes hey, an appearance yeah. here. I put Peeves at number four because he did take part in the battle of Hogwarts. He was helping out along the thing to defend the castle against Voldemort. So I had to give Peeves his shining moment. The poltergeist makes my number five, my number four spot in my top five magical creatures of Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. What's your number four? I like that. That's good. I like that. Uh, four. So remember they went to Xenophilius' house. I feel like most of mine like just came straight from Xenophilius' house. But uh, so remember uh, she thought it was a different kind of horn, but it was actually an rumpet horn at Xenophilius' house. So I put the rumpet. They're uh, native to Africa. They look like hippos, but are five times the size. And their uh, weapon that they use against enemies is their horn explodes which uh remember hermione for that reason remember uh she hit the horn and it exploded the house and they all fell to the bottom with the death eaters uh for that reason for such a powerful moment i had to go with the rumpence man i wouldn't want that shit chasing me on a safari like talk about like a suicide bomber (laughs) like imagine running to the herd of that shit that would suck uh yeah so i put a rumpence at number four what about you man so going into number three, this is something that we find in Xenophilius Lovegood's house as well. I will, you know, spoiler alert, I also put a rumpus on my list at some point. I'm not going to say where. But my number three top five magical creature is the Demiguise. And the Demiguise is actually the creature where the um, you can weave an invisibility cloak out of its hair. So if you guys remember mm-hmm. in that chapter, you're talking about he was talking about how Harry's well not Harry's how the Peveril brothers' invisibility cloak was a true cloak of invisibility. It wasn't a disillusionment charm. It wasn't you know X Y Z. It wasn't a cloak woven from Demiguy's hair. So I went in and I found the Demiguy's uh, there, and it's actually a magical creature. Um, you can find it uh, in the far east, native to the far east. It can become invisible. Uh, it's, it has precognitive sight. They're a peaceful temperament, and they're herbivorous, and they're only a four out of five on the uh, Ministry of Magic Beast classification. So that's uh, d- that's what I put in there for there, just because you can make invisibility cloak out of the Demiguise's hair, which is badass. So that yeah, came at number three awesome. for me. What do you have for number three? Number three, I don't think I mentioned it before. I If I have, maybe it's in passing, but this was kind of a stretch, but like whatever, I didn't have a whole lot to work with. But because of, remember when... Uh, crab it was crab right he casted the the fiend fire and it took the shape so i put chimera (laughs) because uh he can't control his shit but i thought it was really cool they are um actually class 5x which means extremely dangerous and lethal on the ministry of magic scale they do have the head of a lion body of a goat and uh they have the tail of a dragon so imagine that is your Patronus. Holy shit. And we thought Aberforth's Patronus as a goat was badass. But I saw a fucking body of a goat, head of a lion, like snarling at me and shit. And then I look back and that fucking horned ass tail. Ooh, I'm losing my shit. Fuck that, man. So, uh, and because of fiend fire, because I'm a very, you know, fiery spell kind of guy. Uh, I always thought Charizard was the shit. Um, <laughs> so, uh... I put Chimera as number three. What about you, brother? It's funny because I actually have them on my list as well. I'm not, they're not here yet for my number two. but uh, So I guess it kind of gives away. But like I found them in a different part of the book versus like where Crab 
had had the, the like the fiend fire spell. Anyways, I'll go ahead and give you guys my number two first. My number two is Yurumpit, and for the reason nice. why I put this ahead of the demon guys is just because the Yurumpit is like that horn is what allowed Harry. Uh, Ron and Hermione to escape from you know Xenophilus Lovegood's house when it exploded from that curse hitting it. So the fact that it, you know that it was so volatile and it can uh, yeah so it's just one of those things that that uh, ended up playing a big role in the novel. And I think that's why I put it there. I'm not sure if I would actually like the creature above the Demi guys, but I think it was more prevalent and something that plays a bigger role into this novel. So your ump it hit number two on my spot. What did it hit number two for you? Nice, man. Um, I don't think I've mentioned her before. <laughs> if I have, whatever. I put, uh, I didn't have a lot to work with, but I put Nagini as number two. So, Nagini, the big ass snake that's been there from the beginning. The reason I did, you know, she plays such a huge part as part of the Horcruxes. We know she's the last piece now. Also, I've talked a little bit about her background on interesting facts before. She actually was a maledictus, so which means uh, basically it was a blood hereditary disorder where she eventually became a snake. Uh, so she was actually a person before. Um, and then, of course, that's why Voldemort has such a big connection with her with you know, the apostle tongue, and it's so close with her. But she plays such a big part of the book. Uh, I thought it was excellent the way Neville cut her head off. So I put her as number two. What about you, brother? So my number one, we were just talking about it, is the Chimera. And where I found it in the book was actually right there on page 18 uh, when we read that excerpt from Elphias Doge talking about Dumbledore when he said, That was the period of our lives when we had least contact. I wrote to Albus describing perhaps insensitively the wonders of my journey from narrowly escaping from Chimeras in Greece to the experiments of Egyptian alchemists. So uh, he narrowly escaped Chimeras and that's when I did the research on what Chimeras were as well. And for those who don't know me, my favorite animal in life is a lion. So, but, but the fact that I had the head of a lion, you know, I love dragons too. I had the tail of a dragon, then they had the body of a goat. And you guys can you know about that acronym for goat is greatest of all time. So yeah. I thought it was really cool. Had a whole lot into it. So Chimera definitely hit my number one spot. Not to mention that like they are like you said, class five uh, uh, Ministry of Magic classification type beast. And uh, they, their eggs are a class A non-tradable material. So that's how dangerous nice. chimeras are. They almost killed Elphias Doge in, in Greece. And they got all these crazy stuff. Like that would be a cool thing to have. It was a little mix of some really cool creatures there. So chimera hit number one on my Deathly Hallows top five magical creature. What did you get for number one? I have a feeling I know what it is. But what did you put for it? <laughs> you know what this one is. <laughs> I put the dragon from the Gringotts Bank. So... I thought it was badass the way they broke out of there. You know, we've mentioned dragons before, but I didn't have a lot to work with here. But I did <laughs> like this one in particular because it did describe how like pale it was from being under uh, all the vaults and at the bottom of the bank. Uh, I was blind, so you know it, it responded in pain to the clinkers and uh, freed itself from Gringotts. The way it did it, blasted itself out there with Hermione. Harry and Ron on its back, which is the first time we saw them ride on dragons, uh, was just badass. Um, it's told to be a Ukrainian iron belly, but I looked in the book. I didn't see where it ever actually says Ukrainian iron belly. It just usually says dragon, doesn't it? 
Correct. Yeah, it doesn't say in the book. It doesn't label it, but when it is the Ukrainian Iron Belly Dragon. Uh, when once yeah. you, uh, you know they did the whole uh, thing on it, so they it's not mentioned mm-hmm. in the novel. But when you do outside research, that's the the uh, not species. What is it? The type of dragon, I guess. The, uh, yeah. Is, yeah. Which that's what I uh, I was thinking too. I just wanted to because I even brought it up on interesting facts before talking about it. But I just want to always make sure my facts are correct. See. Jay Nelly and I even second guess our own self. So, yeah, man, uh, you're the plot hole guy. <laughs> what uh, plot holes did you get for uh, man, these last chapters here? None that were concrete, but there is one thing I wanted to bring up, and then one that I'm not sure it's a plot hole, but definitely it doesn't make sense a little bit to me. I get it, maybe because of the age, but like I'll say that in a second. But the first thing I wanted to just mention, because I don't know if it was like intentional or not. I'm sure it was, but I want to bring people's attention to it because I don't think that they actually realize this. We basically learned that Voldemort and Harry are related. Like, they are related to each other. Why is that? Well, if Marvolo Gaunt was related to the Peverils, as he bragged to the ministry official in the Pensieve, and Voldemort was Gaunt's grandson, but in the King's Cross chapter, Dumbledore tells Harry that Harry was the last living descendant of, Ign- of Ignotus Peveril, and that the cloak rightly belongs to him, that makes Voldemort and Harry related. Yeah, they, they are. are. Both they are. They're both descended from the Peverils. They're both descended from the Peverils. So I guess that's well, what Gaunt was telling. Remember that? Uh, go ahead. I can actually. Um, technically, they're not, and I can say why, and I can back that up for you. Um, y- yeah, yeah, please I'll go ahead. The reason why we actually no, did I, an I, interesting I know. facts on this. Um, so Harry is related to Ignatius uh, Pepperell from uh, basically past. Uh, through his mother's side so it married ignatus peverell that passed it down through his sons married into the family and then passed it down to their son so technically i'll try to see if maybe i can pull some up on my phone but technically you're right they are related but it's very distant by marriage it wouldn't be blood related because the he got the invisibility cloak that was passed down because Ignatius Peverell's sons married into Lily's side of the family. So, well, I guess technically... I mean, that's still blood... Yeah, that's I guess still technically blood it is. That's, yeah, that's just yeah. very diluted. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you're right, technically. I guess Yeah, so. it doesn't matter who marries what, they still had kids together, meaning the blood still runs from Ignatius Peverell right. all the way down yeah. to Harry. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah I guess then, like we said, like Voldemort... On, was related to the Peverils too because Gaunt was uh yeah Marvolo Gaunt was related to the Peverils so if Marvolo Gaunt's related to the Peverils Voldemort's related to the Peverils and if Voldemort's related to the Peverils and Harry's related to the Peverils they're related to each other so yeah I guess you're right uh, yeah I guess that's true very diluted but yeah he just (laughs) that's fucked up man (laughs) yeah it's pretty it's true though that's true you know that's it's something that it's uh it's something to think about for sure so Along the lines, I mean, and even then, it's just another connection that they've had together. Because Harry and Voldemort have had these strange connections to each other throughout all the series and all the ways that we've found out all the way through. And now to learn that they are related in blood, even though how distant it might be, they're still related to each other is pretty crazy. So that's that's not really a plot hole. It's just something I want people to pay attention to because I think people might overlook that fact. Um, yeah, definitely. The second thing I, ha- yeah, the second thing I have, and this one is just. I, I think I had the answer to myself. It's more of to do with an age thing. But, like, it, it, remember in the epilogue, it states that Teddy Lupin comes around their house for dinner four or five times a week. 
But mm-hmm. remember when Remus Lupin made Harry the godfather of Teddy Lupin? And Lupin and Tonks died? Wouldn't that make Harry the like rightful parent figure for Teddy Lupin? So shouldn't have Harry raised Teddy Lupin at that point? Yeah, because he was the godfather. <laughs> he was the godfather. And the godfathers, you know, the, one of their biggest... Uh, you know, tasks that they have to do is if the parents yeah. pass away, they take control and custody of the kid. The only thing I think is, I guess it stayed with Tonks's mom, but like Tonks's mom must have been really old by this point in time. Because remember, Tonks's dad died. Uh, you know, Ted Tonks died a long time, like not a long time ago, but, but in this book in Deathly Hallows, it states like Ted Tonks was dead. We learned about that yeah. with Lee Jordan on the Potter Watch show that Ted Tonks had passed away. So that would just leave Andromeda Tonks, the, the grandmother, because remember, Remus Lupin and, and um, Nifedora Tonks died in the Battle of Hogwarts. So they had no parents, and you're gonna give like this baby to like you know the grandmother to raise, or like, you, there was a reason why Lupin made Harry the Godfather. Shouldn't have you know Teddy Lupin gone to Harry? Yeah, I mean he should had, but he didn't. <laughs> I guess you know they Harry decided he was better off living in a cupboard or something like a little orphan boy, make him stronger, like he did at the Dursleys. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's that's a good one. That's a good one. That's that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, th- those are the only two things I had there. The the revelation that Voldemort and Harry were actually related through blood all those this you know, ancestrals ago, and you know the Teddy Lupin uh, not going to live with Harry, who was his designated godfather. So, like I said, the first one wasn't really much of a plot hole. It was something I just wanted to bring attention to. But the second one, you know, that's one of the duties of the godfather is when the parents pass away, you become the parental figure. So, those are two yeah. that I had. What did you have? I got three, and they're not, like, major. Like, I was okay with it. But, like, how... So, explain this to me. If Maybe I didn't follow along close enough. But, so, Griphook took the sword of Gryffindor. Even if it somehow... I guess, you know, it got all the way back after that whole thing. How does it wind back up in the sorting hat that gets conjured out of Hogwarts? Like, how is the sword of Gryffindor in the hat? Uh, I guess it's because it, like, it, it, what's it called, reveals itself to whoever is like, like whatever Gryffindor is in need of it at the time. I don't, I, so I don't know because I know in the movie it kind of shows what happens, but we don't really take the movies too seriously. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Griphook does get killed by Voldemort in the books. Well, it doesn't necess- it doesn't specifically state Griphook, but it said the Goblin, and you know, he's the one that was holding yeah. the sword. So you know, you gotta kind of infer that Voldemort killed Griphook there, and then probably just left the sword on its own and then you know the sword kind of appears just kind of did in chamber of secrets why was it in you know did did fox the phoenix put the gryffindor sword in the hat and bring it to harry in the chamber of secrets i guess it just kind of appears to it uh, to to worthy gryffindors is my only answer i don't really know for a fact that's the only thing i could possibly say is that you know it has remember what dumbledore said when he was talking to snape that we found out in uh a prince's tale from last week is when he was like, you remember that has to uh, the sword must be can't just be given to him. It has to be procured through like an act of bravery there. And so when Neville, right. you know, went to go rush Voldemort by himself, there's not much braver than going to rush the darkest wizard as someone who's not yeah. that talented. And maybe <laughs> at that point, the sword presented itself to Neville in that moment. So that's the only thing I could think of, though. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I liked it. Like I thought it was creative, and I and that's what I was getting at too. Like I get it. Like you know, I know Voldemort killed him but i don't think voldemort went up there and just shoved it back in the hat <laughs> i mean because the whole idea of chamber of secrets was like you know the sword 
I mean, it doesn't flat out say like no one had drawn it before, but obviously no one had drawn that sword for like a really long time because it was considered like legendary. Um, another part of the hat, like if it was, I'm assuming, which it does have magical properties. We have talked about that on interesting facts before, but so like, why wasn't that hat like incinerated? after it was inflamed like so they're talking about in the epilogue people are gonna go and be sorted into hats they like make a new hat is this hat like just nothing happened when Voldemort sent that shit into flames like why isn't that thing in ash uh, any thoughts on that only the fact that the elder one no longer worked no no spell held for Voldemort after Harry had sacrificed himself so the silencing spell didn't hold him like trying to torture Harry didn't hold, so maybe the flame spell didn't hold on the hat. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, and then the last one, like I'm okay with it, but like still, even in the books, like Voldemort tells Hagrid, like you're gonna be the one to carry him. So like if Harry is able to whisper to Narcissa, like if you're carrying somebody, even if they're acting like, you know, they do the whole prom videos, like someone acts like they get hit by a car so you don't go drink and drive. Like, how is Hagrid, like, is he that, like, fucking huge where he doesn't realize he's carrying someone that's alive? Like, that's my fucking problem with that. Like, I, even what they should have done has been, like, <laughs> in the words of, of what Achilles did, he drove a nail through his heels and he dragged him. <laughs> That would be awful. I would not be down for that. That would really ruin the plan. That would really ruin Harry's little plan. But I feel like it would have been more made more sense if they had been like, you know, I don't want to say drag him out, <laughs> but done something else. Because I feel like Hagrid would have noticed he was carrying a live person. If he can speak, if Harry can speak to Narcissa, clearly he's breathing. So, I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, just simply that, that to your point, because if you guys look at the, the chapter heading, the illustration of the chapter, he's carrying Harry like the princess carry, right? Like, his arms down here, like, holding him like this. It's not like he's, like, wrapping him over his shoulder where, like, his breath could be heard or the feeling of his chest yeah. going up and down is on his shoulder. He's carrying him like this. And so, him being big, and on top of that, he has like like a lot of clothes on too. If you guys can take a look at that that uh, chapter page there, it's the flaw in the plan. I'll tell you guys what page it's on. It's on page seven twenty four. Like you can see that huge overcoat that he has. So maybe like the breath doesn't fall through the overcoat. Maybe you can't feel it on his arms. And plus, yeah. like you know, Hagrid saw what he saw. Like and maybe Hagrid, you know, Hagrid, you can never accuse him of being the smartest person in the series, right? So maybe right. him seeing Harry die, you know, with that curse hitting him. And like there's no in his mind, like there's no reason to believe that Harry would be alive, so he wouldn't check to see if Harry's alive because he saw him get hit with the killing curse is the only yeah. thing. And he heard Narcissus Malfoy pronounce him dead, basically. So that's my yeah. answer to that. I don't know if it's a great answer, but it's the one it's the one I have. <laughs> yeah. I mean I was okay with it. Like these weren't anything major. It's just kinda like <laughs> like it was a stretch, but I can buy it, kind of thing. So, yeah, man, uh, interesting facts. You got any interesting facts? Yeah, just one, and it's very, very short, and it's not very descriptive, but it's just something I found cool that I wanted to do a little bit of research on. So I want to talk about that King's Cross, like purgatory. It's actually considered limbo, and it's a state of being that exists between life and death, 
Limbo came to being inside a person's mind, making it both real and unreal, and its appearance is different for each person who visits it. And some Limbo experiences involve loved ones or acquaintances that they knew in the corporeal living world. And that is my interesting oh, wow. fact on the uh, on the Limbo purgatory there that we saw in the chapter you took us through, King's Cross. So that was my quick interesting fact. Uh, what did you have? Good stuff, man. Uh, my interesting fact is actually on Lavender Brown. Because I guess maybe like somewhere down the line, like you said with Voldemort. Never know. Could be related, man. Could be related. <laughs> um, so my interesting fact on her is actually, so it's never exactly said in the book however it is thought according to pottermore it is actually listed that she was presumed dead on pottermore no one actually knew if she survived uh, according to just the book's text but i did write this down so another um the reason why it says that another reason is because jesse kane that actually played her in the film mentioned in a quote that said the last scene i filmed was labeled lavender's death scene so that's why i guess of course they have a lot of problems in the film but that's kind of their um i guess their evidence for it also uh she is also the only one that's not mentioned at all in the cursed child um and uh it even though it's not confirmed exactly by jk rowling but that's the thoughts that she did die there is a fan theory that she did become a werewolf but same thing you would have thought it would have been mentioned on pottermore that she became a werewolf if she did indeed survived and also in the film we'll get into the differences later <laughs> i don't know about you it looked like her ass was grass <laughs> what do you think man <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. in the film she for sure was dead in the book, I still inferred that she was dead because it said, like, her body was feebling, like, stirring feebly, like, once yeah. they blasted him off it. And regardless, like, I can kind of debunk that fan theory unless someone can prove to me that that night at the Battle of Hogwarts that the full moon, the moon was full because you can't become a werewolf if he's not fully transformed, right? right. kind of be like Bill yeah. Weasley with that tainted blood. Maybe she likes her steaks a little on the rare side now if she did survive. But <laughs> and, not, and, and not in any point in the novel series did it say that there was a full moon and Greyback was fully transformed into a werewolf when he bit Lavender Brown. Plus, I think she died anyways just by the way you can kind of infer the text of where she was uh, stirring right. feebly. So I think that she is, in fact, dead and that fan theory is probably trash. So yeah, <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah, man. Uh, you want to go ahead and close us out and uh, kind of bounce off each other. But yeah, it's uh, this is it for the book's text. Um once again guys uh of course next week we'll do the differences episode um just know this is the last week of interesting facts this is it so we'll have one more week of interesting facts and uh you know it's all opened at the close and we're gonna be closing here um after next week i think we'll have one more surprise episode for you guys so we're not gonna leave you hanging uh we're not in that business so uh, just for the case of nostalgia and kind of like our old episodes, you know, now you're going to have kind of, we got two episodes left that are the old school Chase and Josh, which is why you followed us the whole time. So after all this time, um, but yeah, uh, I'll let you guys, I'll let, uh, Jay Nelly over here and himself, uh, the coach of the show, man, this was the first part. I always say it was kind of like my section of the book. Second part is all Jay Nelly. 
So it's just funny how everything always broke up perfect throughout this entire franchise. Just like Gobble to Fires, Jay Nelly's book, uh, my book from now, from this day to my last day, um, Game of Thrones. <laughs> but uh, it is uh, always Order of the Phoenix. Just always will be to me. Um, but yeah, I'll let you go ahead and sign us off, man. I think it was good stuff today. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because it is, it is really true how perfectly it worked out. Each of us took every single piece that we wanted there was never a part that you took that i wanted there was never a part that i took that you wanted it worked out perfectly i felt like i got to close out the books but you closed it out in its entirety with the epilogue so it really did work out exactly as it was supposed to so really happy that uh, we were able to give you guys such great content throughout this harry potter series like chase said we do have two more episodes we have a differences episode next week followed by the week after that we will close out harry potter in its entirety as well as season one of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy in its entirety with a cool little rankings episode. We won't give you guys what's in the rankings yet. We'll kind of leave that as a surprise. But we'll be doing uh, quite a bit of rankings for things found in the Harry Potter series. Uh, with that being said, though, guys, thank you so much for being with us. We know some of these episodes along this series have been super long, covering so many big topics. And it's very flattering that you guys have stuck with us this entire time listen to our four hour episodes or five hour episodes you know you know they're not really going to find anything less than two and a half hours here so yeah that we understand that that's a good chunk of time and the fact that you've enjoyed the content that much have missed harry potter that much that you stick with it and listen to it like in its full thing whether you guys are in the car whether you're working out at the gym you're stuck with us we're here finally. We finished the contents of the book. There is going to be no more new content as it pertains to Harry Potter. Unless hopefully, fingers crossed, they come out with a live action series on HBO years down the road. We're, we're hoping for that, right? I, uh, but uh, outside <laughs> of that, hope. you won't hear anything. <laughs> yeah, right? You won't hear anything new regarding Harry Potter from us uh, and what it, what's written down in the series after today. So this was it. This was the resolution that we promised. Uh, it is all done. The book is closed. Now we're going to, you know, next week talk about the differences between the novel and the film, part two. So I'll tackle from chapters 25 all the way through epilogue between that and the part two of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But like I said, guys, thanks again. Uh, if you have, if this is your first time joining us, you join on a wild ride. This is the resolution of it all. So if you joined today, amazing. Welcome to Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We hope to have you along for the long run. Those who have been with us since day one, as Chase always says, you are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. We're lucky to have such great audience members as yourself. Uh, if you haven't already, guys, go ahead and click a click the cast a spell. This is one of the last times I can say that. Cast a spell on that subscribe button. Follow us on all of our pages at Instagram. You can find us at official ridiculous patronus on Facebook. You can find us at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. That's our fan page there. We do have our own website that will be updated following the conclusion of all the uh, everything you find in Harry Potter there. So that is for you guys to check out as well. We are on Twitter, RP Factor Fantasy. We are on TikTok. Chase has done a lot of great work on TikTok. You can find us there at Ridiculous Patronus. Uh, Chase mentioned last week he put something new on there, and uh, yeah, for in terms of social, you can find us on. But so whether you're our iPhone users, your uh, Android users, it doesn't matter. Wherever you get your podcast, you can find us on that platform. A huge shout out to our hosting site Podbean. As we're starting to close down our first season, they've been nothing but amazing to us. Uh, putting us on their featured list for so many weeks in a row, so many months in a row. Uh, we really couldn't ask for a, a better way to kind of close out our second big arc. Like I said, we still got a couple episodes left, but nothing 
you know, further from here will be from the books themselves. So with that being said, I'll turn it over to Chase to say his final piece, and we'll get out of here for today and catch you next week when we tackle the differences. So Chase, go ahead and take it away, my man. Yeah, guys. Uh, just once again, you know, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Really means a lot. We're still getting those. Jay Nelly showed me one the other day that kind of came out as a surprise. So uh, it really is cool, you know, seeing people come out of nowhere and, and see us uh, see us on this great content arc that we've had, which is really, I'll say, uh, just a no, I'll say me personally, this has been the biggest arc <laughs> I've ever covered. It's been a, a beast. Um, I think, you know, we had no idea the we knew it'd be a lot of work, but I mean, it, it's definitely if anyone's going to try to take on Harry Potter, just know you're in for it because <laughs> it was uh, it, it definitely put a few gray hairs on my head. What about you, Shane Ellie? <laughs> Dude, yeah, it did. It was yeah. something I, I did more work for this arc than I put into graduating college. And I'll just be honest, I put more work yeah. into doing that. Like I had more sleepless nights, more like carpal tunnel writing notes down. I worked harder on this damn arc than I did graduating college. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it, it was, uh, it's definitely been, it is a beast. But as far as the books go, we have finally conquered that giant. So. And I'll say, you know, it's been great. Everything's been planned for a reason, guys. You know, uh, we started October 25th, the same week Harry's parents were killed, October 31st. Um, you know, we're going to be finishing up our last episode. That surprise episode will finish on the week of Harry's birthday, July 31st. Actually, ironically, today this episode premieres the week of the week of july 17th which uh, that was a friday but it's the week of july 17th which is when uh, harry potter and the deathly hallows the last film uh finished which is perfect because we're going into our film differences for harry potter and the deathly hallows part two so everything's been for a reason and on top of that we're finishing on the 20th year anniversary of harry potter just like how we did uh the two-year anniversary of game of thrones um so it's just well yeah i guess it was probably the one year anniversary one year then because we're a year later now <laughs> we're still in the same season but it's been a year and a half so a one year anniversary of game of thrones and it just means so much to us uh y'all been on this ride and um you know th we got two episodes left before you might have to hang on for a little bit <laughs> between season two comes out but with that being said uh once again guys just like jay nelly said uh, he's the one that gave that big quote this time. Not going to take it away, but I will say, after all this time, uh, in the words of Albus Dumbledore and Snape, always, and with the triangle, which is the cloak of invisibility, the line, that's the Elder Wand, and the circle for the Resurrection Stone. Y'all have been here all this time. And I'll let Jay Nelly sign us off. You got it. It's been the utmost pleasure bringing Harry Potter to you in the way, shape, form, and fashion that we did. We got a resolution of what Harry was going to do and put the Elder Wand away. But guess what? Jay Nelly's got the Elder Wand in his hand. If you can see it on YouTube, <laughs> I got the Elder Wand now. So we'll go ahead and say goodbye for this week. We'll catch you next week because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Sign it off. off.